Hey folks. I pretty much said it all last week before the first part of this episode. I hadn't finished the final, final cuts at the time that I wrote that little spiel, but I was definitely right about the size of this thing. Even chopped in half, it took me more than a few tries to get the upload to stick with my Mexican internet, even using FileZilla. And if that's all meaningless to you, no worries, because it got up and this one did too. Thanks to Felicitas, our newest patron on Patreon. And while I have some more announcements next week, man, for now, finally, let's finish this thing. Here we are at the very beginning of the end. My name is Jonathan Coombs. We're talking for the last time about Iran. And this is Safe for Democracy. America is today the strongest, the most influential, and most productive nation in the world. ¿Para qué sirve entonces la civilización? ¿Para qué sirve la conciencia del hombre? ¿Para qué sirven las Naciones Unidas? But these differences were all forgotten in one unshakable unity of determination to find a way to end war. We do not want a war. We do not now expect a war. This generation of Americans has already had enough, more than enough, of war and hate and oppression. Across the world, we're hunting down the killers and we're showing them the definition of American justice. There is a recurring temptation to feel that some spectacular and costly action could become the miraculous solution to all current difficulties. We have an obligation to be of help where we can to freedom fighters and lovers of freedom and democracy from Afghanistan to Nicaragua. The United States has no intention of determining the precise form of Iraq's new government. That choice belongs to the Iraqi people. Those who make peaceful revolution impossible will make violent revolution inevitable. We want democracy to survive for all generations to come, not to become the insolvent phantom of tomorrow. As the Iranians mounted offensive after offensive, the Iraqis mostly held the line, with the Iranians making paltry gains like Majnoon Island in the marshes. Besides the attrition at work on even Iran's massive population, Saddam looked for other ways to break Tehran's resolve. The first was what we've already talked about and what became known as the War of the Cities, where he sent jets and Scud and other medium-range missiles into civilian areas. His pilots and the Scuds were both highly inaccurate and killed non-combatants indiscriminately. The War of the Cities, as Axworthy notes, also had no effect, or even a positive effect, on Iranians' desire to fight, the way that terror bombing has historically always strengthened rather than weakened a nation's resolve, with, I guess, the case of the atom bombs accepted, although that might have been more of a case of threatened annihilation than terror bombing per se. By the spring of 1984, those strategies had failed to produce results, as had Iraqi attacks on Iranian oil production facilities. So Saddam began targeting shipping traffic directly. You may or may not know that oil-producing countries by and large aren't oil-shipping countries. The tankers that sail into the Persian Gulf come flagged under every nation on Earth, and Baghdad's choice to begin sinking those tankers with French jets and French-made Exocet anti-ship missiles was about as clear a violation of international law as they come, right after his initial invasion of Iran. As was the case throughout the war, although Saddam began the war on the tankers, and Iran only joined in to keep up, and while Saddam could hit much more Iranian shipping since it was coming out of the shot, while he was now selling his oil through Kuwait where the Iranians couldn't touch it, 
The Iranians ended up receiving much, and in some cases all, of the blame for the tanker war. The Western powers, loath to lose their oil supply, cracked down, with the US and the British sending warships into the Persian Gulf, a move which effectively protected Iraqi shipping, since aircraft from Tehran would have to cross over those fleets to hit Iraqi shipping, while leaving Iranian shipping exposed, since Iraqi aircraft could launch their exosets with a range of 70 kilometers from within their own airspace. On the ground, Iranian offensives continued much as they had until that point. From Axworthy, quote, But the next major attack came from the Iranians, again towards Kurna, from the Hawiza marshes, in an offensive codenamed Operation Badr. It began on 11 March 1985 and repeated the pattern of earlier offensives, but by this time the Sepah were better equipped and trained to fight more like conventional infantry, rather than using the human wave tactics. The Iranian attacks broke through the Iraqi defenses and by 14 March reached the Tigris River north of Kurna. That night, a body of 3,000 Sepah got over the river using pontoon bridges and finally reached the Baghdad-Basra road at Kurna on the other side. But on the 15th and 16th, the Iraqi reserves counterattacked with massive firepower on three sides against the narrow salient established by the Iranians, using nerve agents as well as the chemical weapons they had used before. By the 17th of March, the surviving Iranians who managed to avoid capture were retreating back to their start lines, and, despite a further attack in a nearby sector between 19 and 23 March, Badr was another terrible failure. It has been estimated that the Iranians lost around 10,000 dead and the Iraqis 2,000. Beyond the front itself, Saddam responded with renewed and heavy attacks on Iranian cities and on Karg Island." Unquote. Once the Iranians had managed to move their oil tanking facilities into other locations, where Iraqi jets had a harder time reaching them, the tanker war died temporarily down. When the U.S. caught wind that the Iranians might be setting up Chinese land-based silkworm long-range anti-ship missiles, it began pressuring Iran in earnest to end the war, afraid that the Iranian regime might begin to put as much hurt on Washington as Washington was putting on Tehran. Kuwait, for its part, began reflagging its tankers as U.S. vessels in order to obtain naval escorts into and out of the Gulf. As Axworthy points out, with the Gulf full of Navy ships and mines, overflown by jets of all different flags, and overlooked by silkworm and exocet missiles, it was only a matter of time before things went wrong. On the 14th of May, 1987, two Iraqi French-made F-1 Mirages flew at a U.S. escort ship as if to attack it, and then veered off when they were acquired by its radar. Probably a mistake on their part. Three days later, on the 17th, another Iraqi F-1 came up on the USS Stark, a missile destroyer, and fired two exosets into it, one of which blew up in the crew quarters, killing 37 men. Ronald Reagan, maybe or probably well into dementia at this point, but sharp enough to stick to the U.S.'s perennial insane posture towards Tehran, blamed Iran and not Iraq for the Iraqi fighters' killing of U.S. sailors. I'm going to give you another long excerpt here from Fisk because he's as pissed about our historical madness on the subject as I am. Quote, Even before Saddam Hussein made his own unprecedented and contrite expression of remorse, and long before the U.S. Navy had begun its own three investigations into the attack, President Ronald Reagan decided to blame Iran. Quote, We've never considered them hostile at all, unquote, he said of the Iraqis. Quote, They've never been in any way hostile, unquote. The Gulf was an international waterway. Quote, No country there has a right to try and close it off and take it for itself. And the villain in the piece is Iran. And so they're delighted with what has just happened, unquote. 
Listening to Reagan's words, one might have thought that Iran had started the war by invading Iraq in 1980, that Iran had been using chemical weapons against Iraq, that Iran had initiated the Maritime Exclusion Zone in 1984, which started the tanker war in the Gulf, of which the U.S. ship was indirectly a victim. Iraq was responsible for each of these acts, but Iraq was deemed quote-unquote friendly. Only a few weeks before the near-sinking of the Stark, U.S. Undersecretary Richard Murphy had himself visited Baghdad and praised Iraq's quote-unquote bravery in withstanding Iran, spraying its enemies with poison gas, now a definition of Iraqi courage for Mr. Murphy. Reagan had rewarded the aggressor by accepting his excuses and referred to the nation that did not kill his countrymen as the quote-unquote villain. It was an interesting precedent. A visit by a group of U.S. senators to the melted-down crew quarters on the Stark was sufficient to set them off in a spasm of rage at the one country that had nothing to do with the American deaths. Republican Senator John Warren, a former secretary of the U.S. Navy, described Iran as, quote, a belligerent that knows no rules, no morals, unquote. Senator John Glenn was reduced to abusing Iran as, quote, the sponsor of terrorism and the hijacker of airliners, unquote. Thus, Saddam's attack on the Stark was now bringing him untold benefits. Americans were talking as if they were themselves contemplating military action against Iran. Reagan, for his part, pretended that the Americans were in the Gulf as peacemakers. Quote, were a hostile power ever to dominate the strategic region and his resources, unquote, he explained, quote, it would become a choke point for freedom, that of our allies and our own. That is why we maintain a naval presence there. Our aim is to prevent, not to provoke, wider conflict, to save the many lives that further conflict would cost us, unquote. Most Americans knew, Reagan said, that, quote, to retreat or withdraw would only repeat the improvident mistakes of the past and hand final victory to those who seek war, who make war, unquote. The Iranians, needless to say, the victims of Iraq's aggression, were those, quote, who seek war, who make war, unquote not quote-unquote friendly Iraq, which had anyway been taken off the State Department's list of quote international terrorist countries, unquote, in 1982, two years after its invasion of Iran, and in the very year that Iran reported 11 Iraqi poison gas attacks against its forces, unquote, and unquote. An oil tanker runs the gauntlet of air attacks in the Gulf War. TVI sails with the crew. It's a voyage through the area where 14 oil tankers have now been hit by air attack from Iran or Iraq. The most dangerous place for merchant shipping today is the Gulf, surrounded by the Gulf War. One of the biggest oil terminals there is the Iranian one at Karg Island, and today there are reports that the Iranians may be forced to close it to shipping. This follows the attack early yesterday in which a Swiss supertanker was set on fire by an Iraqi missile. Seven of the crew are missing, believed dead. What's happening is that the war on land between Iran and Iraq is spilling over into the sea, with western tankers being the sitting targets for both sides. Once through the entrance, the Straits of Hormuz, the oil tankers face a problem regardless of their destination. If they're going to pick up oil from Iran, on the right-hand side of the Gulf, they face the threat of attack by Iraqi planes armed with Exocet missiles. If they're going to the oil terminals on the other side, they face attack by Iranian planes. All right, back to domestic politics. I know I'm jumping around here in times and subjects more than I'd like to do on this show, but on the home front, just not much of interest to us was happening. And in the war, plenty of interest was happening in terms of the human toll 
and I wish that I had the time for that. But like I said in the first part of this episode, I'm trying to paint in broad thematic strokes. So, after the regime had more or less wiped out the MKO, and much of the rest of the organized left, the IRP was left in control and began to bicker within itself. Not, it looks like, in a dangerous or fragmentary way, but the way that one party will when it's the only game in town. And more than that, when it's a party that was created as a fusion of leftist and Shiite ideas about raising up the poor alongside conservative Islamic ones. From actually, quote, The revolution's commitment to the Mostazafin, to raising up the lower classes, to improving their living conditions and access to education and health services, was not mere propaganda. It was genuine and served to initiate real changes and improvements. Genuine, too, was the sense that the underprivileged somehow represented the real Iran, an element of social chauvinism was also involved, and that the poor were more Iranian, more Islamic and more virtuous than the pampered, westward-looking middle classes and intellectuals, unquote, a position that should look familiar to modern American conservatives, no? In conflict with what could have been interpreted as the socialist, or at least Ali Shariatiist, basis of the revolution, were the traditional conservative values of the bazaaris, the clergy, and the landholding classes. This was where we got stuff that just did not seem to square, in our terms, with the rest of the revolution's philosophy, like a tight attachment to private property and the enforcement of traditional norms on Iranian women. A preoccupation with West toxification on both sides also served to hamper inroads for socialist values. Despite all that, though, Khomeini, to the end of his life, continued to attack the farther-right economic conservatives in Iran as embodying the kind of Islam that ruled in Saudi Arabia, with a rich aristocracy on top and the poor laboring beneath. Fisk writes about the period that, quote, such public freedom of expression as still existed could be found in the Majlis, unquote, which might be a slight exaggeration, but which flew in the face of international and maybe also domestic expectations that the parliament would be used to rubber-stamp Khomeini's directives, the way that it had under the Shah. The Majlis fought with the speaker, Rafsanjani, over land reform, social reforms, government control of trade, and other initiatives that smacked to more conservative Iranians of out-and-out socialism. Montezeri, who was, incidentally, involved in setting up Hezbollah in Lebanon, ended up, like we said earlier, by 1983 as the Ayatollah's acknowledged successor, and their pictures were set up together in public. But Montezeri was into, quote, statist and leftist economic politics, unquote, in line with his Islamic and Shiite preoccupation with the poor, which wasn't popular with the religious conservatives who made up the strongest part of the IRP's base. Even so, the Assembly of Experts confirmed Montezeri as heir apparent in 1985. The infighting in the IRP continued until 1987, largely sickening the Iranian people with their politics, when it seemed to them as though the ongoing massive war on their border should have been uniting their leaders. Rafsanjani, Khomeini, and Khomeini all agreed, more or less, that the public had a point, and in June of that year, Khomeini dissolved the party that had delivered him the revolution. Axworthy says that, quote, It seemed that Khomeini intended this just as the first step in a series of reforms designed to tidy up the system, to adjust it to changed conditions, and to get it in good order for the future, a future that before long might not include him." Unquote. Khomeini, in response to questions by liberal and conservative members of the Majlis and the Guardian Council, which oversaw the constitutionality of legislation, issued rulings late in 1987 that confirmed the Islamic State's absolute control over all other aspects of society, including economic control of the private sector. 
It also confirmed a political principle further afield, something that came to be known in the Iranian context as expediency. And that was that the interests of the state superseded moral law and the law of Islam. It's a point that Western nation-states passed under Louis XIV and Cardinal Richelieu, but it was a strange turn, and per Axworthy, quote, before long the effect of Khomeini's new ruling of absolute now, rather than jurists' guardianship, would be felt in an altogether more frightening context, unquote. Two more things to report before we get back to the war, and which will carry us up nearly to the end of the 1980s in domestic Iranian politics. That's that the liberal factions in the Majlis only got stronger with each passing election. And the second is that while the MKO was basically non-existent in Iran, except for the large number of members, former members, or people unlucky enough to have been found with one of their pamphlets, who were rotting in overcrowded prisons, there was an active body of the MKO in Iraq, that was working with Saddam's military and plotting its return to Iran. Something to keep an eye on. The prospect of Basra being cut off eventually panicked Iraqi leaders into widespread use of chemical weapons. Iranian gas masks afforded little protection and chemical weapons more than any other Iraqi ordnance were responsible for extensive Iranian battlefield casualties. Mustard gas and nerve agents were delivered by small, innocent-looking planes based near Baghdad. ITN's cameras were prevented from filming more of them. At first, the scale of its use surprised the Iranians, who were forbidden by Ayatollah Khomeini from following suit. In the war in these middle years, plenty was happening. But like I said a bit ago, in our terms, not a whole lot was happening. In 1986, for example, the only changes of territory of note were Mehran and the Fao Peninsula. Fao, if you've seen the maps, was on the Iraqi side of the Shat al-Arab and controlled the mouth of that waterway. And early in the year, in an operation involving over 100,000 men, frogmen and sepah troops in rubber assault boats crossed the river under the cover of night and established a beachhead on the Iraqi side allowing further Iranian forces to throw the Iraqis off the peninsula and effectively landlock Saddam. A coup, for sure, but hardly a step towards victory, especially because Iraq was already exporting the bulk of its oil through Kuwait. In response to the occupation of Fao and Iraqi failures to retake it, Saddam crossed the border about halfway up and seized the small Iranian town of Mehran, hoping to trade the one for the other. Iranian counterattacks drove the Iraqis back, and further raids launched from Fao managed to burn a major Iraqi oil platform, quote, reinforcing the sense that the Iranians now had the upper hand in the land conflict, at least. But despite speculation, propaganda, and ominous signs of a buildup of troops and war materials, no further major Iranian offensive was forthcoming before the end of the year, unquote, writes Axworthy. The thing that was going on of interest to us at this point was something the world came to know as Iran-Contra. I'm going to try to be as brief as I can, but this is going to take a second to unwrap. The basic setup here is that Israel was selling American arms to Iran. Why? Well, like we mentioned earlier, Israel, despite U.S. support for Iraq, had found Iran to be a partner in balancing against the Arab states in the Middle East in the time of the Shah, and look to continue that relationship, even if Khomeini's rhetoric on Zionism meant that it had to be under the table. The U.S., in turn, wanted the weapons headed to Iran in exchange for the release of U.S. hostages held by Iran-aligned groups involved in the Lebanese-Syrian-Israel-PLO international civil war going on in Lebanon at the time. 
Robert Fisk's book, Pity the Nation, which I mentioned in the show notes last time, will literally change the way you look at the world, along with explaining to you this incredibly important conflict that in all likelihood you know nothing about, if you want to get into that. And finally, Reagan wanted to support the anti-communist Contras against Daniel Ortega's revolutionary Sandinista government in Nicaragua. The disastrous results of similar policies in other countries in Latin America, some of which we heard about in the Guatemala shows, had led the Congress to outlaw any further aid to the Contras, so Israel would sell weapons and spares for the American-made arms in the Iranian arsenal. The Iranians would put pressure on the groups in Lebanon to release hostages and pay the Israelis in cash. The U.S. would resupply the Israelis, and Tel Aviv would pass that cash to the Contras. From Axworthy, quote, The Iran-Contra deal broke all kinds of taboos. The U.S. under Reagan had a fourth-rate policy on hostages, stiffened by the memory of Carter's humiliating dealings with Iran, and perhaps by the congruent policy of the U.K. under Margaret Thatcher, that no ransom should be paid for them, indeed that the U.S. government should not even negotiate with hostage-takers. In addition, the U.S. at this stage had an equally firm policy that no arms should be sent to Iran, and had been successfully applying pressure to prevent other countries supplying Iran. This effort had been called Operation Staunch. And all of this was aside from the constitutional impropriety of funding the Contra rebels by this dubious route, against the will of Congress." Unquote. It's worth doing some reading on your own time about this whole affair, because it's part and parcel of the Reagan administration's unswerving dedication to lying to the American people. I literally cannot figure out why the GOP still worships a dude so incompetent, with policies so bankrupt. But in any case, the Gipper got on TV, told the country he hadn't known anything about the deals, and let a guy named Ollie North take the fall for him. Some U.S. officials had flown secretly to Tehran in the spring of 1986, shortly before the whole thing went public, in order to try to develop high-level contacts with the regime. And while they met with what was basically the head of the Majlis Foreign Relations Committee, that was as far as they got, although Rafsanjani passed along the message that he wanted to keep in touch. After the story broke, and collaboration between the three principals was as scandalous in Iran as in the U.S., they broke off contact. But Tehran had at least obtained parts and weaponry required to keep its precious F-14 Tomcats in the air and brutalizing the Iraqi Air Force. Axworthy holds that the domestic fallout from Iran-Contra in the United States and attempts to compensate for it might explain why the Reagan administration then turned even more strongly in favor of Iraq in the war. On the Iranian side, only one guy took the fall. That was Mehdi Hashemi, a senior cleric in the regime who had opposed the arms deals. He's the one who leaked details to the Lebanese press, and he was executed the next year for sedition and treason. Montezeri, remember him, the heir apparent, tried to intervene on Hashemi's behalf, a move which further alienated him with the less radical and less leftist parts of the regime, like Khomeini, Rafsanjani, and Khomeini himself. When President Reagan and Attorney General Edwin Meese appeared in the White House briefing room on short notice today, no one was prepared for their surprising announcements that money from the controversial Iran arms deal was secretly funneled to the Contra rebels, fighting the Sandinista government of Nicaragua. According to Attorney General Edwin Meese, Admiral John Poindexter, director of the National Security Council, knew about the secret transfer of money and one of his deputies, Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North, arranged it. Poindexter resigned. North was fired. For his part, the president said he was not informed of North's scheme. And at the White House tonight, NBC's Chris Wallace has more on these unexpected developments. Chris? 
Tom, officials here are calling it the worst scandal of the Reagan presidency, jeopardizing his policy in the Mideast and now Central America, and costing him a top advisor. The president was still maintaining today that his Iranian arms deal was not a mistake. But he said that over the weekend, the Justice Department... The Iranians capped off 1986 with the first in a series of offensive that would dominate the next year and come to define the savagery of this last stage of the war. Karbala 4 like the Karbala Fives and beyond that would follow, was aimed at Basra, sitting tantalizingly just over the border. So on Christmas Eve 1986, thousands of Sepa frogmen crossed the Shat al-Rab just northwest of Khorramshahr, looking to establish a foothold at Umrasas, another large island in the stream, one which might allow the Iranians to establish a crossing just 20 kilometers from Basra. Under cover of night and despite heavy resistance, the Sepa fighters took the island, but at dawn, the Iraqis opened up with artillery, airstrikes, helicopter gunships, and small arms, driving the Iranians back over the river and leaving more than 10,000 of them dead on the field. Karbala 5 was set for the beginning of the new year, 1987, and aimed to strike across Fish Lake, the massive mine and wire-filled artificial pond built just to the east and north of Basra. Basra itself seemed to the Iranians their opening into Iraq and to victory, the Iraqis recognized its importance and had surrounded it with five elaborate rings of defense, Fish Lake itself being part of the first. The Iranians had moved more than 200,000 men into the Basra Khorramshahr sector in preparation for Karbala 5, and the Iraqis had made similar moves, tipped off to the troop buildups by American satellite intelligence. The operation stepped off on the 9th of January, when 35,000 Sepa fighters moved stealthily across the lake as another four armored and infantry divisions attacked Iraqi installations at the south of the body of water. 65,000 more Sepa fighters crossed after the initial assault. Over the 9th and 10th, the Iraqis cleared the first two lines of defense around Basra and looked to be making real gains. They were helped by new American anti-tank weapons and spare airplane parts that came through the Contra deals, and, despite an Iraqi advantage in armor and a 10-to-1 advantage in numbers in the air, Iranian infantrymen drove back their tanks, and hard dogfighting Iranian airmen threw back a force ten times their size, denying air cover to the Iraqis on the ground. The Sepa crossing Fish Lake, moreover, had been helped out by the water, which deadened mortar and artillery impacts. The losses to mines were considerable, and the stink from exploded and rotting fish was apparently as hellish as anything ever seen on the Western Front. By the time the first push had bogged down a few days later, and both sides had started digging trenches, Iranian forces had covered five of the 12 miles between Basra and their jumping-off point. I've got an excerpt here from an autobiographical novel by Ahmad Degan, Journey to Heading 270 Degrees. Degan was in the Karbala Offensive, and his narrator, Nasser, who has already served a tour with the Revolutionary Guards, decides to join his friend Ali at the front as Iran was spooling up for the operation. I'm not sure that you need a blow-by-blow -blow of the First World War to understand it was terrible, when a few pages of remark can bring it across. So listen to this, first quoting from Axworthy's book, and then from Degens. Quote, They leave for the front, arriving as troops are preparing for the offensive, and move forward to follow up on the initial attacks, occupying foxholes vacated by the Iraqis. Then Nasser is ordered to lead forward a team armed with rocket-propelled grenades drawn from several platoons in a night attack to destroy some Iraqi tanks lying up between them and the Basra Highway. They move up in the darkness towards the tanks, crawling closer and closer until they are only 30 meters away. Nasser orders Ali to fire at first one tank, then another. Both are hit and destroyed, but then the remaining tanks start to fire back and try to maneuver out of trouble. 
Quoting from the novel now, and from the perspective of Nasser, the narrator, quote, Ali separates from us, and goes after the tank that has just started up and has us in its sights. I cry out, stop right there, hit it now. As I turn away, I see Ali facing the tank as it speeds toward him. I shout, Ali, fire, what are you waiting for? I leap towards him. What is he waiting for? I am but a few steps from him when there is a wave of fire from his RPG that lifts me off my feet. But even as I am flying through the air, my thoughts are with Ali. I see the rocket he has just fired hit the turret of the tank and ricochet off of it. I land flat on my back, but before losing my breath, I scream, Ali, get out of the way. After a few moments, I raise my head and I see Ali jump to the left. The left tread of the tank stops and it pivots to confront him again. Unable to move, Ali remains helpless before it. I sit up, catch my breath, and cupping my hands over my mouth, yell, Ali, Ali, out of the way, let someone else fire at it. The tank charges Ali like a wild horse. As he staggers a few steps away, the fires from the tanks burning behind him cause his shadow to fall on the advancing tank. Ali emits a cry that does not sound human to me, as he becomes woven into the treads and disappears under the carriage. When the tank passes me, I notice it is on fire, and moving through the heart of the scorched field, it draws a fiery line that divides the field in half. I race madly towards Ali, but it seems like I am running on clouds and I will never reach him. When I finally get there, I stand over what is left of his body. He stares up at me with a look of horror and disbelief. I sit. The tread has crushed his midsection. His main artery is still spurting blood and his left eye is moving. He has been cut in half, exactly two pieces. I take his head and the upper part of his body into my arms. The lower part is mashed into the tank tracks. I can't take my eyes off his face, which is etched with an immense agony. When I caress his face with my hand, his lips part and shards of teeth fall from his mouth. I feel that if I don't scream, I will suffocate. Unquote and unquote. Nasser leaves Ali's body and takes shrapnel wounds in the subsequent fighting. He gets sent to an aid station just on the Iraqi side of Fish Lake to wait for an ambulance which will take him across the causeway, where the Iraqi guns are dialed in, to safety. Quote, the first ambulance had been trying to make a U-turn when someone cried, they hit it. I peeked out of the shelter to see it engulfed in a ball of flames. The young medic tells us to stay where we are while he stands there waiting for the next ambulance to come. It turns around and pulls up to the entrance. The medic rushes to open the rear door and then makes a dash for the shelter yelling, run, run, it's here. With the exception of two men on stretchers, all of us are ambulatory. The medic loads the stretcher cases first and we climb in after them. He slams the door. The ambulance driver turns his head and says to us, hold on, we're going to try to outrun the shelling on the road. He is in his late 30s with graying hair. The ambulance lurches forward. We have reached the causeway that cuts through Fish Lake. There is a firestorm raging everywhere, as all the enemy guns have honed in on this one spot. A line of Katyusha rockets explodes in the lake, catapulting fish of all sizes out of the water. For a moment they seem like flying fish, playfully gambling through the air. Waves of dead fish break along the sides of the road. The stench is everywhere. The ambulance swerves to avoid a ditch in the middle of the road which sends us flying. The ditch is filled with water. Beside the road is the overturned carcass of a vehicle and further ahead a burning truck. It was probably loaded with ammunition as things keep bursting and popping inside of it. The driver hunches over saying, I think, watch it. As we crouch down instinctively, there is a large explosion in the truck that sends dust pouring through the cracks in the rear of the ambulance. The road bends and the enemy fire abates, unquote. Nasser is put aboard a bus camouflaged with mud that takes the wounded to an improvised hospital in Awaz. 
The Iranians consolidated their forces first for a further push on the 29th of January, and then again on the 22nd of February, eventually piercing all the way through the fourth defensive ring around the city and getting tantalizingly close to Basra. But the Iraqis eventually poured 300,000 men into the fight, along with nearly every piece of heavy artillery in their military. And later in January and into February, their air force, even at the risk of massive losses. The Iraqis pushed the exhausted Iranian forces back at the end of February to the positions they'd taken on the very first day of the offensive, across and just to the south of Fish Lake. The fighting died down, and the Iranians marked the operation as an official success. As Axworthy writes, quote, Again, as in the First World War, the big push that had been aimed at the capture of a strategic city was acclaimed afterwards a success because it achieved, at appalling cost, an advance of a few barren miles, unquote. The cost was indeed appalling. The Iranians lost as many as 25,000 dead out of 65,000 casualties, with the Iraqis taking about a third as many, along with as much as a tenth of its entire air force. The Iranian high command had reached Karbala 8 by April, but managed to take only a tiny amount of territory, again with heavy casualties. Three Iraqi armored columns were destroyed as the Iranians made gains they were to retain for nearly a year. They had caught Iraq's static defenses by surprise to occupy land of no military importance but immense political significance. But the biggest prize, Basra, eluded them, just as large Iranian cities had defied Iraqi encirclement years before. Yet Iran itself had failed to learn that lesson, and this was the closest they got. While increasing self-sufficiency in weapons and spare parts production left Iran looking particularly strong at this point to outside observers, the brutality of the war, its stalemated status, and the fact that it was being fought in aggression rather than defense, now all contributed to war weariness and declining volunteerism among the Iranian people. What's more, since Iranian tactics relied so heavily on massed groups of Sepah fighters, with recruitment falling, Tehran's ability to launch new offensives actually fell over 1987, despite the improvements to its war industry. The leadership put any large war-ending actions officially on hold at this point, and the year finished out without much movement past Karbala 5. In early 1988, though, Tehran ramped up their smaller-scale actions and attacked into Iraqi Kurdistan in the northern third of the border. They captured the city of Halabja in March with the help of Kurdish fighters from the anti-Iraqi Patriotic Union of Kurdistan. While the Iranians didn't occupy the town and instead dug in around it, Saddam, with his characteristic concern for the welfare of his Kurdish subjects, attacked Halabja directly. From Axworthy, quote, on 16 March, the Iraqis bombed Halabja with chemical weapons, nerve agents, but possibly cyanide also. Several thousand people died, maybe 4,000, perhaps more, and many more were injured, some permanently, with brain damage and other disorders of the nervous system. Dead bodies, human and animal, littered the streets, huddled in doorways, slumping over the steering wheels of their cars. Survivors stumbled around laughing hysterically before collapsing. Those who had been directly exposed to the gas found that their symptoms worsened as the night wore on. Many children died along the way and were abandoned where they fell in the escape, unquote. Before the attack, Colonel Patrick Lang, the same guy at the Defense Intelligence Agency who'd said that Iraqi use of chemical weapons was not a matter of concern, reported that the DIA, quote, 
would never have accepted the use of chemical weapons against civilians, but the use against military objectives was seen as inevitable in the Iraqi struggle for survival." Unquote. The attack on Halabja didn't do anything to change the Reagan administration's mind on the subject. In fact, the State Department and the DIA cooked up bogus reports attributing the attack to Iran and distributed them to the international press. The U.S.'s reaction to what happened in Kurdistan was just the latest in what seemed to the Iranians like an endless series of hypocrisies and empty declarations of neutrality. Here they were with a city full of dead Iraqi civilians, murdered by the most heinous means, and the international press was pulling a trump and talking about both sides. First, it had been the UN's call for a ceasefire, as if they were both at fault when it had been Saddam's war to start. Then it had been the US and the rest of the West declaring neutrality, but then funneling guns and money to Baghdad. Then it had been the US and other actors guaranteeing the sanctity of international oil shipments, but only if they were coming from Iraq. From Axworthy again, quote, Some within the US intelligence system may have genuinely believed that the Iranians used chemical weapons during the Iran-Iraq war, but their belief was based on little beyond an expectation that if bad things were being done, the Iranians were likely to be doing them. The Halabja incident showed, among other things, how far U.S. and international opinion had swung against Iran, how isolated Iran had become. But also, for Iranians at least, it was another demonstration of the way that the norms held up by the Western nations as standards of international behavior seemed in fact to be flexible and mutable when it suited Western nations to change or overlook them even when it involved genocide." Unquote. It wasn't the first and it would not be the last time that the Gipper tried to lay someone else's atrocity at Tehran's doorstep. Two jets swooped low to bomb a Kurdish town recently taken by Iran. An Iranian army camera caught the moment of impact, not high explosives, but cyanide gas. In less time than it took Iranian helicopters to fly over Halabja, some 5,000 civilians were killed. Many were frozen in the vain act of trying to protect babies and children. Two survivors described the incident. He says, we know that it was the Iraqis airplane and they came here and bombed and left. Nor was it the first time Iraq's leaders had committed genocide against the Kurds. Some 5,000 were massacred in 1975, and another 4,000 were killed by chemical weapons days after the Gulf War armistice. Man, this just keeps going, doesn't it? The tanker war hadn't been super hot for the last couple of years, largely because the Iranians had cut off Iraqi access to the Shat al-Arab, and because of a large American and British naval presence in the Gulf. What had happened were several incidents, like the one we talked about earlier, between Iraqi and Iranian planes and American ships. U.S. vessels had also hit Iranian mines in the Gulf, putting naval officers on edge. And one Captain Will Rogers of the U.S. Aegis-class cruiser, the USS Vincennes, was particularly nervous and trigger-happy. On the 3rd of July, 1988, Iran Air Flight IR-655 took off from Bandar Abbas Airport in Iran for its regularly scheduled flight to Dubai, with 290 passengers on board. Its flight took it close to the airspace over the Vincennes. As for what happened next, as Fisk writes, quote, The Americans, as usual, got their version out first, although it would change many times over the coming days. We were told that the Iranian Airbus was not on a normal flight path, then that its pilot failed to respond to warnings from the Aegis-class cruiser. Then that the plane was diving towards the American warship, 
and that its identification transponder was not working. Captain Will Rogers III believed, according to the Pentagon, that he was under attack by an Iranian F-14 Tomcat fighter aircraft. But the American story began to crumble when the Italian Navy and another American warship, the frigate Sides, confirmed that the plane was climbing, not diving to attack, at the time of the missile strike, unquote. When that intelligence emerged, the Pentagon changed its story and reported that the plane's communications equipment hadn't been signaling correctly. Later, they alleged that it had been sending out an IFF, or Identification of Friend or Foe, signal that identified it as a military aircraft. From Fisk again, quote, The all-important issue was to justify the frightfulness of what had happened, to talk of the quote-unquote tragedy of the passenger jet's destruction. Tragedies are forgivable. The advantage for the Americans was that the Iranian side of the story would never be fully told, because those most intimately involved were all dead, unquote. Robert Fisk was reporting in the region at the time, and he traveled to Dubai to talk to the British air traffic controllers on duty there. They told him that in recent months they'd been terrified by American naval officers' apparent lack of preparedness in managing the large volume of civilian air traffic over the Gulf, and that they'd been sending aggressive challenges to civilian airliners for a long time by that point. Quote, end quote, Robert, the Americans knew at once that they'd hit a passenger airliner, unquote, one of them told me, Fisk, quietly. Quote, there was another American warship close by. Its crew reported seeing people falling at great speed out of the sky, unquote. I, and this is Fisk, sat behind the Dubai control tower thinking about this. Yes, the passengers would all fall out of the sky like that, over a wide area, together, in clumps, in bits, from 10,000 feet. I could imagine the impact with the sea, the spouts of water, some of the passengers, no doubt, still fully conscious all the way down. Three days later, in the emergency Bandar Abbas mortuary, I would look at Fatima Faidazeda and realize with horror that she must have been alive as she fell from the heavens, clutching her baby as she tumbled and spilled out of the sky in the bright summer sun, her fellow passengers and chunks of the Airbus and burning fuel oil cascading around her. And she held on to her baby, knowing, could she have known, that she must die, unquote. Captain Will Rogers had warned the Airbus that it was on course to violate his airspace, but he'd done so on a military channel, ensuring that the pilots on board would not receive his signal. He sent the first message when the jet was 40 kilometers out, and another at 25. After that second warning, at 9.54 in the morning, Rogers launched two surface-to-air missiles, both of which exploded near the Airbus and erased it from radar. Crewmen on the nearby U.S. warship would see, seconds later, the wing of the Airbus pirouetting out of the sky. From Fisk again, quote, It is extraordinary here in the boiling southern Iranian port of Bandar Abbas how the official explanations of condolence, sorrow, and self-absolution in Washington seem both hollow and opportunistic. What in Washington is called a tragedy, as if some natural disaster overwhelmed these dead airline passengers around me, seems in Bandar Abbas to be an outrage. In the United States, it was possible for newspaper editors to suggest that the Airbus might have been on a suicide mission, that the pilot was deliberately trying to crash his passenger-packed airliner into the American frigate that shot it down. Even my own paper, The Times, has disgracefully made the same claim. But in Bandar Abbas, where the pilot's friends and colleagues have spoken openly to me without official prompting, these suggestions are offensive, obscene. An entire family of 16 Iranians were on the Airbus, traveling to a wedding in Dubai, the children in their wedding clothes. They are still dressed in the same bright, joyful colors in the coffins in the cold store, as Reagan sends a letter to Congress announcing that he now regards the matter of the Airbus destruction 
as closed. Our response was predictable. We didn't mean to do it. The destruction of the airliner was a mistake. But it was still Iran's fault, unquote. Along with the changing narratives emerging from the Pentagon, top U.S. officials continued to make a case for American innocence and Iranian culpability. Vice President George Bush went before the U.N. Security Council to announce that the Vincennes had been steaming to help a merchant ship under Iranian attack, which was entirely fabricated. Maggie Thatcher, backing up her ally in the fight to keep Middle Eastern oil flowing to the West, described the shootdown as quote-unquote understandable. From Fisk again, quote, Citizens of Vincennes, Indiana, were raising money for a monument, not to the 290 dead Iranians, but to the ship that destroyed their lives. When the ship returned to its home base of San Diego, it was given a hero's welcome. The men of the Vincennes were all awarded combat action ribbons. The Air Warfare Coordinator, Commander Scott Lustig, won the Navy's Commendation Medal for heroic achievement, for the, quote, ability to maintain his poise and confidence under fire, unquote, that enabled him to quickly and precisely complete the firing procedure, unquote, and unquote, against the Airbus. The United States eventually settled an Iranian case against it in the International Court of Justice, paying for the airliner, along with $300,000 for every wage earner and $150,000 for every non-wage earner killed. The U.S. has never admitted wrongdoing or apologized, and that same George Bush Sr., shortly after the incident, made his feelings clear, saying, quote, I will never apologize for the United States. I don't care what the facts are. I am not an apologize-for-America kind of guy, unquote. This is TVO Eyewitness News, live from World Expo 88, with Rob Reddings and Chris Collins and the Eyewitness News team. Tonight, Iran vows revenge for the U.S. missile strike on its airliner. Members of the Kilroy family held on drugs charges. And Commissioner Fitzgerald schedules the end of his inquiry. Good evening and welcome to TVO Eyewitness News. Good evening. Iran has vowed to avenge the deaths of 290 people killed when an Iranian airliner was shot down over the Persian Gulf by a U.S. warship. Everyone on board the Iran Air Airbus perished when it was hit by two missiles shortly after takeoff. Among the dead, according to Iran, were 66 children. John Wiseman opens our cover of the tragic bungle, when, which has added a new dimension to the Gulf War. So, back for the last time to the war in earnest. Like we heard earlier, the Karbala offensives around Fish Lake aimed at cutting the Baghdad Basra Highway and taking the city came almost to naught and exhausted the Iranian military leaving it in a defensive or stalemated posture, Halabja aside, for the rest of 1987 and into 1988. The Iraqis, on the other hand, having held off massed Iranian attacks for most of six years now, with comparatively lighter losses and with vastly greater international financial and material support, went on the offensive for the first time since 1982. Their attacks were aimed at all the small pockets of Iraqi territory the Iranians had captured, from Halabja and Kurdistan in the north down to the marshes, Fish Lake, and on to the mouth of the Shat al-Arab. At the same time, Saddam renewed his War of the Cities after the strike on Halabja, sending long-range artillery and missiles into Iranian civilian centers, especially Tehran. Those bombings and shellings, combined with a newly demonstrated ability to deliver chemical weaponry on missile warheads, indicated to the Iranians that increased pressure might result in all of their major cities being wiped away in the ugliest possible manner. 
Combined chemical and artillery bombardments allowed Saddam to retake the Thau Peninsula, which dominated the exit of the shot into the Gulf on the Iraqi side of the waterway. That, combined with American action in the Gulf proper, seriously hampered Iranian attempts to dominate the sea lanes and preserve their own tenuous oil shipping. Around the same time in that year, the USS Samuel B. Roberts struck an Iranian mine, and the U.S.'s response was to blow up two Iranian oil rigs along with two Iranian frigates. In May, the Iraqis, using new imported anti-personnel cluster munitions and mustard gas, managed to retake the territory near Fish Lake that the Iranians and the Sepah especially had bought so dearly during the Karbala offensives. Axworthy posits that a reason for the turnaround at this point might have been that Iraqi officers had finally convinced Saddam to leave them alone, and that they were vastly more competent commanders than he. The Iraqis reoccupied Majnun Island in June, and by the end of the onslaught in early summer, Saddam's forces had rolled back nearly every Iranian gain to the status quo of 1982, or territorially, the status quo antebellum in 1980. And returning to their starting positions after so much bloodshed finally began to sap the determination to continue in Tehran, and internal debate quietly started up over the spring and early summer as to how to go about stopping the war. Early in the year, and independent of the secret debates and considerations, economic planners within the regime had informed the leadership that because of declining oil revenues, the results of Iraqi and U.S. attacks on facilities and shipping, along with war spending, the economy had reached a tipping point. Before long, the regime would be forced to relax price controls and food subsidies, the only thing keeping poor Iranians afloat at this point and a red line for the leadership, both in terms of their commitment to the poor and their nervousness about weathering another wave of domestic unrest. So it was that in mid-1988, the Ayatollah turned over the war and the question of halting it to Hashemi Rafsanjani, still speaker of the Majlis at this point. Rafsanjani traveled to the front to talk to the commanders of the Sepah and the regular army, and to obtain from them estimates of the kinds of men, support, and material they would need in order to continue the war, and to bring it to a victorious conclusion. The reports that they gave him were enormous, and he saw very clearly that the Iranian state and its economy were no longer capable of sustaining the war as it was being fought, let alone of winning it. Rafsanjani met with Khomeini on the 14th of July, 1988, and the Ayatollah agreed both that it would be impossible to win the war, and that Iraq under Saddam might soon begin to use long-range missiles to pour chemical agents into Iranian cities and to force the issue. Khomeini charged Rafsanjani with convincing the leadership to accept the UN Security Council Resolution 598, put out after Karbala in the previous year, as their basis for a ceasefire. Rafsanjani then met with Khomeini and other stakeholders and secured their agreement. On the following day, Rafsanjani went before the Majlis and obtained its support as well. On the 16th of July, he won over the assembly of experts. Then he drafted a letter to the UN to the effect that Iran was now amenable to its resolution which called for an immediate ceasefire preliminary to peace negotiations, and he delivered that letter to Secretary General Pérez de Cuellar on the 17th of July. After the dissolution of the IRP, with his picked men at the top of every branch of government, and with all of them well aware of his great age and necessarily impending death, not to mention the backdrop of the war, Khomeini may never have been in tighter control, had he wanted to be, of the processes of government than he was at this moment. And despite all of that, he still went through channels to ensure that the ceasefire was a consensus decision, reached through the normal functions of government. That's no small thing, especially as setting up an example towards the end of his tenure. Khomeini was no Cincinnatus, and no Washington, looking to step down at the earliest opportunity and return to the farm. But he wasn't a Napoleon either, 
using a populist revolution to invest himself with the imperial purple. In any case, Khomeini announced the decision to change the Iranian position on continuing the war in an address on the 20th of July over state radio. He began by memorializing the deaths of pilgrims killed by the pro-Iraqi Saudis on the Hajj to Mecca the previous year, and then meandered, almost, into declaring the new stance on peace. The debate, no matter how wide-ranging, had been happening within the government and not in the press, and it took the mass of the Iranian people, who'd been tuning into pro-war messages just the day before, by surprise. Khomeini said that he had consulted with his men and with the military, and that it simply would not be possible to carry the war effort to an eventual victory. Quote, the acceptance of this issue is more bitter than poison for me, he said. But I drink this chalice of poison for the Almighty and for his satisfaction, unquote. If I were writing this history in the 19th century, I would have said that the internal turmoil and grief over the decision probably hastened his death. From Axworthy, quote, This was not just a political or a moral crisis for Khomeini. It was a spiritual and psychological crisis as well. He believed that God had inspired and guided him, and the Islamic Republic. But now God had decided to withhold from Iran the victory for which her leaders had sacrificed so many lives. Why? It is sometimes said that Khomeini and the leadership of the Islamic Republic regarded the war as a blessing, in that it united the country behind the leadership, enabled them to overcome political opponents and to consolidate revolutionary institutions. There is truth in all of that, but it would be wrong to suggest that that was the prime motive behind the war or the continuation of it. Khomeini and the others like him believed that it was a just war and that Iran's pursuit of it was justified. As we have seen, any attempt to be objective should conclude that, for the most part, they were right, even if wrong in the practical assessment of the possibility of victory. The political advantages to the regime were real, and more than incidental, but they were collateral effects of a war that appeared to them to be just and necessary." Unfortunately, Saddam couldn't just take the peace being offered, for all that he had publicly advocated a ceasefire for nearly a decade at that point. So he pursued what he always pursued, treachery. Saddam told the UN in a letter on the 20th of July that he would accept the offer, but only under certain conditions one of which was direct talks on the issue through the UN, which would, according to Axworthy, result in official international recognition of his regime, and thus upset the Iranians who'd been trying for nearly a decade to unseat him. The other caveat was that the UN would intervene to secure safe oil shipping in the Shat and the Gulf, which sounds reasonable to us, but sounded pretty dangerous to the Iranians, who'd been receiving biased treatment from the United Nations through the entire war all of which gave Saddam the cover of apparently pursuing a ceasefire while ensuring that they wouldn't reach one. On July 22nd, Saddam showed why he'd been stalling, and hundreds of thousands of Iraqi troops again surged across the border. In most places, Iranian-prepared defenses in depth stopped the attacks. In some others, the Iranians pulled back in the face of chemical weaponry, and then counterattacked after its dispersal to recover their positions. The lands aimed at Kerman Shah penetrated a full 40 miles into the interior, but after its armored tip was blunted, Iranian forces pushed the salient back to the border. There was only one column that made significant progress into the country. You remember a bit ago when I said that the remaining leadership of the MKO had buddied up to Saddam and then moved into a city on the Iraqi side of the border? Well, the 7,000 men in this column were the remaining members of that outfit, equipped and paid now by Baghdad. These men the Iranian armed forces allowed to penetrate a full 100 miles past the border, 
before finally turning on them and tearing them to pieces in what may be fairly described as a massacre, with very little sympathy for their erstwhile countrymen. Saddam had assembled the force in order to throw it away, and he gave it no air cover in its pell-mell retreat back to the border. As ineffectual as that attack was, it sparked a kind of paranoid hysteria on the part of the regime in Tehran, one that was especially unfortunate, given that, as Actually writes, quote, several thousand MKO prisoners had been in jail in Iran since 1981, and there were several thousand more Kurds, Fedayeen, Tuda, and other political prisoners. Conditions were grim. Many of these people were, of course, motivated revolutionaries who had supported the revolution against the Shah, whose groups had fallen out with the IRP later, though some were youngsters and others with only tenuous connections to the MKO or other groups. The prisons of Evan and Gohar Dasht were the mouths of the revolution as it ate its children, unquote. While even during the war, Iranians enjoyed a freer politics and a freer, though not by any means entirely free press than they had under the Shah, the courts and especially the prisons were another story. The authorities of the Iranian revolution were more discriminating in who they jailed. Drug offenders and leftists from the MKO and associated groups like the Fedayeen above all, even those with the most tenuous connections. But conditions were not much better. Torture had been formally outlawed by the revolution in 1979, so what went on as a result was similar to what the American military and intelligence agencies put to use after 9-11. Enhanced interrogations, stress positions, confinement, and unending noise. Unlike either the Savak or the Americans, they stayed away from nudity, electrodes, burning, and knives, but relentless sleep deprivation, blindfolding, loudspeakered propaganda, and the use of tiny hotboxes made incarceration unbearable in any case. Axworthy says that the authorities of the revolution didn't pressure prisoners for information, but for confessions, and it sounds a lot like the Soviet conditions that came across in Arthur Kessler's Darkness at Noon, or Orwell's 1984, or even V for Vendetta, pick your favorite dystopia. Not just an attempt to extract something from you, but to break something on the inside, to get you to deny what you knew and espouse what you did not. The attack by the MKO column in 1988 led to another even uglier development. There had been a great number of executions carried out before 1985, after the MKO assassination bombings and during the pseudo-civil war against that group. Something that, as I said before, might not have been morally justifiable in the terms that SFD holds to, but might, in the context of the revolution, have been defensible along some other popular, more rail politique lines. The scare over the MKO's attack from Iraq sparked something altogether less acceptable. The MKO and other dissidents' gaolers began interrogating not just recent captures, but the entire political prison population, going back to those who had been imprisoned as early as 1981 and survived, until then, the prison purges. Those who avowed continuing allegiance to the MKO were hauled off for immediate execution, those who recanted their loyalties were pressed further to denounce former comrades in their confessions. Some were asked if they would personally execute the men they'd repudiated, and if they refused, they'd be sent to execution themselves. From Axworthy, quote, Many of the prisoners did not at first appreciate the significance of the questioning. For example, it was important when asked, Were you brought up and educated as a Muslim? to answer no because to answer yes would mean that a later avowal of Marxism was apostasy from Islam to be punished by death. If the prisoners could sustain the impression that they had been brought up in ignorance of Islam, they might be spared and could persuade the jailers that they had recanted from the atheistic beliefs by praying, 
but lapses from the rituals of a pious Muslim were punished by brutal whippings, unquote. Executions of apostates, of people who failed to realize how thoroughly they needed to reject any contact they'd had with far-left politics, from real membership in a proscribed group to having been caught with the wrong kind of pamphlet half a decade ago, ramped up insanely, with thousands condemned to death in 1988, the great majority of the remaining political prisoner population. Devastating barrages by rocket and artillery backed by armoured assaults eventually enabled Iraq to break the Iranian stranglehold. With Iran eventually war-weary and on the brink of accepting the United Nations peace call, Iraqi forces once again poured across the border in a last-ditch land grab. Montezeri, even at this late date and despite many growing conflicts with other senior members of the regime, was still the heir apparent. And he heard appeals from family members of prisoners, desperate to contact their relatives. And he wrote this to Khomeini. Quote, Three days ago, a religious judge from one of the provinces, who was a trustworthy man, visited me in Combe to express concern about the way your recent orders have been carried out. He said that an intelligence officer, or a prosecutor, I don't know which, was interrogating a prisoner to determine whether he still maintained his old position. Was he prepared to condemn the hypocrite organization, the MKO? The prisoner said yes. Was he prepared to take part in a television interview? Yes, said the prisoner. Was he prepared to go to the front to fight the Iraqis? Yes, he said. Was he prepared to walk into a minefield? The inmate replied that not everyone was prepared to walk over mines, and, furthermore, the newly converted could not be expected to do so. The inmate was told it was clear that he still maintained his old position, and he was duly dealt with. The religious judge's insistence that a decision should be based on a unanimous, not a majority vote, fell on deaf ears. He said that intelligence officials have the largest say everywhere, and in practice influence others. Your holiness might take note of how your orders, that concern the lives of thousands of people, are carried out, unquote. Montezeri's opposition to the prison killings may have been the final straw in removing him from the succession for Khomeini. By the end of the spate of executions, somewhere between four and 5,000 people had been murdered outside of any real legal process. From the social theorist Ernest Gellner, quote, a collectivity united in a belief is a culture. That is what the term means. More particularly, a collectivity united in a false belief is a culture. Truths, especially demonstrable truths, are available to all and sundry and do not define any continuity of faith. But errors, especially dramatic errors, are culture-specific. They do tend to be the badges of community and loyalty. Assent to an absurdity is an intellectual rite of passage, a gateway to the community defined by that commitment to that conviction, unquote. Gellner and Axworthy both supposed that the prison massacres might have been a final test put up by Khomeini as he saw his own death on the horizon. Those of them in the regime who would participate, who would get on board, who would support it both in public and behind closed doors, they would be bound together by these terrible murders, and they would be people that Khomeini could count on to defend the new state and its expediency at any cost. From Axworthy again, quote, One could see the killing of the MKO prisoners as an expression, even a legitimate expression, of the strong public mood. After all, the numbers killed were a tiny fraction of those killed in the preceding eight years of war. But that cannot be any kind of justification for what happened to the prisons, and the concealment is an indication that the leadership themselves knew that. 
Most of those who were killed had already been tried and sentenced for their political activities. Some had actually completed their sentences and were still in prison only because they had continued to refuse to recant. Some young prisoners had been sentenced to short terms for distributing MKO literature in school, and then were executed along with unrepentant, diehard MKO activists. Whatever the views of the prisoners, no law could punish them for the actions of others, for the MKO offensive, for example. To do so was just as much a violation of the normal standards of Sharia law as of any other kind of law, as Montessori pointed out at the time. The questions put to the MKO prisoners were not designed to establish guilt or even traitorous intent. They were designed to entrap and to sweep away as many of the prisoners with a connection to the MKO, however weak, as possible." Unquote. On the 10-year anniversary of the revolution, in February 1989, as this was still going on, some top members of the regime gave interviews regarding their thoughts on the first decade. And Montessori said, and quoting uh, Axworthy again now, quote, he urged officials of the Islamic Republic to, quote-unquote, make up for past mistakes and create an open society. He asked what had happened to the unity and devotion the country had enjoyed at the beginning of the revolution. Had the government lived up to its ideals? Had it fulfilled its promises to the people? Had the regime done a good job during the war? Or had Iran's enemies, who imposed the war on Iran, emerged victorious? It was necessary to count the losses and the destruction, and then to repent the mistakes that were made. Montezari questioned whether the slogans of the last 10 years had isolated Iran from the world and turned the people against the regime. Quote, On many occasions we showed obstinacy, shouted slogans, and frightened the world. The people of the world thought our only task here in Iran was to kill, unquote. He praised Khomeini's recent decision to allow an amnesty for those surviving political prisoners and urged honest self-criticism and openness. There were two ways to celebrate the anniversary. One would be to keep the people in ignorance. The other would be to acknowledge mistakes and to invite everyone, whether within or outside of Iran, alluding to the nearly 4 million Iranians abroad who wanted to return but were scared to do so, to help with reconstruction, unquote. At this point, Montezari's pronouncements on the anniversary bugged Khomeini as much or more than had his opposition to any number of the regime's harsher attempts to restore and preserve order since 1979. But later in 1989, letters and memos that Montezari had produced in opposition internally to the prison killings got into the Western press and returned to Iran by way of the BBC Persian service. Khomeini and his men assumed that Montezari's supporters had leaked the letters, as they probably had, and the Ayatollah blew his top. He consulted with Rafsanjani and the Assembly of Experts, and then sent Montezari a letter late in March telling him that not only that no longer was he eligible to follow as the leader, but that he had never been eligible, which just seems childish to me. They were heady times for Khomeini's heir apparent, icon of the Islamic Revolution, scourge of the Shah, a founding father of the Islamic Republic. The scourge of the regime he founded, Iran's rebel Ayatollah. Until the government rethinks what it is doing to this country, the situation is really dangerous. God willing, they will reassess things and won't use Islam or the name of Ayatollah Khomeini as a justification for their deeds. The mighty Montezari's fall from grace was brutal. He had dared to question his old friend, Ayatollah Rukhullah Khomeini, and the direction the revolution was taking. For that, he was stripped of his inheritance, branded a traitor, and worse, a heretic. 
As the madness in the prisons was getting started, the Iraqi assaults of the summer of 1988 petered out, and the UN Security Council called on Saddam to cut it out and to sit down to talk. The ceasefire took effect on 20 August, although negotiations toward a final peace went on until 1990. Saddam refused to recognize the pre-war border with regard to the Shat al-Arab and left tens of thousands of troops in disputed border areas. In response, Iran held on to Iraqi prisoners of war, continued arming itself, and kept up a partly effective naval blockade. The international community was largely still on Iraq's side and might have forced Iranian capitulation or the renewal of hostilities, but for what happened in 1990. Saddam, deeply in debt to the West and the other Gulf states, and acting on an unintentional go-ahead from the U.S. State Department, invaded Kuwait, hoping to recoup his debt losses, leading to the Gulf War and his defeat at the hands of the U.S. coalition. He smartened up midway through 1990 and agreed to a peace treaty returning everything to the status quo antebellum. From Fisk now, from a trip he took near the border at the end of the war, quote, Perhaps a million men died here, and in the battle line that snaked over 900 kilometers to the north, to the snows of the Turkish border, almost twice the length of the 1914-18 Western Front, and fought over for almost twice as long. A whole generation of Iranians and Iraqis walked up to the line of death in the villages that sound, to the survivors and to the families of the dead, as somber as Ypres and Verdun and Hill 60, Vimy Ridge and Beaumont Hamel. The names of their cavalries are almost as familiar to me now. Kerman and Shalimcha, Penjwin and Koramshar, Abadan and Fatah and Awaz and Fao and the Battle of Fish Lake. The Iranians suffered most. I used to ask in my reports then, stunned by the resilience of the Iranian defenders, whether they had their own Owens and Sassoons to write about war and the pity of war. Unquote. The pity of war was anything from the official Iranian figure of 220,000 of their men dead on the field up to some international estimates that run as high as 600,000. Alongside that is the official Iraqi figure, topping 375,000, and the international estimates which reach as high as 500,000. Total costs are less disputed and estimated at over a trillion dollars in destruction and lost revenue. For all that, though, as Axworthy says, quote, Before the revolution and the war, Iran's history for decades and centuries had been a history of humiliation, powerlessness, foreign invasion, occupation, of foreign interference and foreign domination, and Iranian politicians and governments that had connived at foreign interference. It is difficult for non-Iranians to fully grasp the deep frustration and resentment at that. Now, for once, the country had set up its own government by its own efforts, had rejected foreign meddling and foreign threats, had defended itself for eight years despite great suffering against tough odds and had come through. Iran was now a real country, with real independence, not looking to any other nation for support, advice, help, or guidance. The confidence and pride in that achievement, and the anxiety lest the country slip back into dependency, go a long way to explain what for many foreigners seems inexplicable about contemporary Iran and the behavior of Iran's leaders since 1988. And it does not just apply to supporters of the Islamic regime, but also to many opponents of the regime, and even some of those most bitterly opposed among the Iranians in exile." Unquote. Coming back now, finally at the end of the war, to domestic politics again, the Ayatollah seems to have lost his steely grip right towards the end of his life. He started an effort at a revision of the constitution to work out the kinks in expectation of his own demise, and did so in a way that's hampered Iranian politics to the present. 
The ordered rewrite finished in July of 1989, almost a year after the ceasefire. It abolished the prime minister's office, increasing the power of the presidency. It annulled the requirement that the new leader, now to be known as the supreme leader, be beyond a certain level in the Shiite clerical hierarchy, pretty much to open the way to Khomeini, who was ascendant in the regime, but who'd never written, in effect, a thesis on Islamic law, and was pretty lowly as far as Islamic scholarship went. It arrogated some of the presidential powers to the supreme leader, and took some authority away from the Majlis, weakening the liberal counterbalance to the leader and the president. Most damagingly, it gave the Council of Guardians greater power to vet candidates for the Assembly of Experts. Now, we've heard about all those different councils and assemblies before now piecemeal, so let me explain together here one last time. The Iranian state, at this point, it has a president who is elected by the people, and a majlis or parliament also directly elected by the people. Then it's got the supreme leader, at this point Khomeini and leader-to-be Khomeini. Then it's got a guardian council made mostly of clergy who vet all legislation for its agreement with Islamic law. The supreme leader appoints six Islamic law experts, and the majlis appoints six judges to this council, who may also be Islamic law experts. The Guardian Council, after the constitutional reform of 1989, also began to vet candidates for and members of the Assembly of Experts, which is the body that monitors the current and chooses the next leader in the event of the current Supreme Leader's death. The leader-appointed members of the Guardian Council form a stronger and more united bloc than the six different ones picked out by the Majlis, which means that they can pick conservative members of the Assembly, which will then pick a conservative leader. It's like the Pope stacking the College of Cardinals to make sure that his successor looks like him. Even worse, though, for Iranian politics, was the newly expanded ability of that Guardian Council to vet candidates for all public offices, meaning that it could purge the roles, if it wanted to, of any troublesome liberal candidates to the Majlis or the governorships of the provinces. With this last disastrous reform taken care of, The Ayatollah Khomeini passed away in June 1989, leaving Khomeini in his stead. Khomeini publicly endorsed both the constitutional reform and Hashemi Rafsanjani's candidacy for the presidency before his passing, and the Iranian public approved both by large margins over the next two months. Axworthy believes, and I would agree, that Khomeini's pronouncements and changes to the law were an attempt to pave the way for these two men to keep a steady hand on the helm of the state without anymore, Khomeini's personal, extremely popular presence behind them. Had Khomeini passed on without those reforms, he might have merited an SFD eulogy for the shining democracy that had grown up in his wake. But as it is, things did not exactly turn out that way. As Axworthy writes, quote, In doing what he did, and by the combination of his new principle of expediency, which we talked about earlier, and the removal of the qualification that the leader must be a marja, or a senior cleric, Khomeini had moved justification for the Islamic Republic onto very different ground. In the name of maintaining an Islamic state, principles of religion had been wholly subordinated to the requirements of power. To say that power corrupts is commonplace, but perhaps misleading if taken too literally. There is corruption in the Islamic Republic, as there was in the time of the Shah and as there is in many other countries. But corruption in its narrow sense is not the worst that power has done. As in other revolutionary states, power has eaten up almost everything else, subjected every other principle to its own purposes. Rather than saying that power has corrupted, one might say that it has purified by destroying or co-opting everything that has stood in its way, 
in order more nearly to approach a point of perverse perfection at which power alone is worshipped. Power alone is enhanced, supported, facilitated, and upheld." Unquote. A lot of political maneuvering happened during the war years, most of which we didn't get into and most of which we don't really need to get into to understand what went on afterwards. What is very important is that Hashemi Rafsanjani used two pretty apparently lame positions, the Speaker of the Majlis and the Spokesman of the Supreme Defense Council, to build up a dominant position both within the government and among the public. It was Khomeini's choice that nominated Khomeini to the new leader position, but after the Ayatollah's death, it was Rafsanjani's influence in the relevant bodies that got Khomeini confirmed. Quick aside here, I know that pronouncing them Khamenei and Khomeini might bring across the differences in the names in a way that sounds less dumb and more enlightened, but I don't know the first thing about Farsi, and trying to speak a language you don't know is the first step down a very slippery slope. These problems will only multiply once we get to Vietnam, and I probably should have mentioned this earlier, but I'm trying for consistency and clarity more, unfortunately perhaps, than correctness when the language in question is out of my wheelhouse. Anyway, Rafsanjani had a dual interest in elevating Khomeini. They'd worked together as allies for a long time, but Khomeini's weak religious credentials also hamstrung him in terms of authority, both with the religious establishment and with the public allowing Rafsanjani to exercise a kind of presidential authority and independence that would have been impossible under Khomeini. Politically, Rafsanjani in rule was pretty centrist. The government had taken control of a huge amount of production in the war years, and Rafsanjani proposed to reprivatize industry in a five-year plan, opening the country up to international trade and borrowing heavily to retool factories for sale to companies and investors. Rafsanjani came later to look more conservative, but that was largely, I think, because of his opposition to the far left, forever a bugbear after the MKO in 1981. When Saddam invaded Kuwait, moreover, there were some on the left in Iran who wanted to get involved. Not, as you might think, to finish off the Ba'athists in Baghdad, but to teach the Americans a lesson about staying out of the region. Saddam's swift defeat discredited the leftists in parliament, and they were becoming less popular as the 1992 Majlis elections came around. What turned the country further in an authoritarian direction, with Rafsanjani and Khomeini at the top, though, were those new powers for the Guardian Council, which heavily vetted candidates for those elections. It was hard not to do better, economically, after the bad war years, and Rafsanjani's government made strides on pretty much all economic fronts until he came up for re-election in 1993. For Maxworthy, quote, Education policy in Iran has been one of the prime achievements of the revolutionary regime, in that primary education was finally extended to all, even in rural areas, and to girls, thereby achieving a high literacy rate, 80%. Because education at secondary level was segregated under the Islamic Republic and veiling was enforced, many traditional-minded fathers who previously would have kept their daughters at home allowed them to go to school. The emphasis on education reflects Iran's long history as a literate, civilized culture, and the respect for learning of ordinary Iranians. But the policy commitment to it, sustained even in wartime, also reflects the intellectual values of the clergy as the dominant political class. As in the time of Reza Shah, however, the irony is that despite efforts to inculcate ideology through textbooks and so on, many of the newly educated youth of Iran have used their education to question the very Islamic values of the regime that gave them their education." Unquote. Iranian teaching in minority areas, to be fully fair, has been less successful, largely because of an integrationist or anti-ethnic policy of Farsi-only instruction. After 1992 or 1993, though, and Desert Storm, 
oil prices around the world plummeted, and the new sectors of the economy that Rafsanjani had been nurturing just couldn't keep up with the shortfalls, which meant inflation ballooned as the government printed money and foreign exchange for imports dried up. The U.S. also imposed the Iran-Libya Sanctioned Act, or ILSA, in 1996, which did not help. It was a response to attacks made by various groups which had been involved with Iran or vice versa in the past. It seems unlikely from my viewpoint that at a time of relative stability in the Middle East and introspection in the Iranian regime, that anybody in the official structures of power in Tehran was actually trying to make this stuff happen. In any case, Iranian economics into the late 1990s was concerned with reconstruction. While it hadn't acquired a huge debt burden like Iraq, its industry was in a shambles, with GDP down a full 54% from its 1976 peak, in part because of those dropping oil prices I mentioned, and in part because of the damage of the war and the problems it had presented in terms of importing parts and keeping competent personnel in industry rather than on the front. Likewise, swathes of the border country and entire cities had been demolished or depopulated by shelling, bombing, and chemical attacks, all of which needed to be rebuilt and repopulated. Masses of refugees needed to be resettled, and the country's industry had to be reoriented towards civilian and peacetime activities. When I said earlier that I doubted that anybody was directing formerly Iran-backed groups abroad, like Hezbollah in Lebanon, for example, to carry out attacks anymore, I did so because along with his economic reorientation, Rafsanjani had made an intentional pivot away from that stuff at the end of the war. He said, quote, The Islamic Republic now needs a prudent policy more than it needs anything else. We need a prudent policy both for inside the country in order to strengthen our base and for our foreign policy so that we can have a presence and help people in our region without being accused of engaging in terrorism, without anyone being able to call us fanatics. We do not need to speak fanatically. We have no need to chant impractical slogans. We do not need to say things which are not acted upon, needlessly frightening people and blocking our own path, unquote, much of which could be taken as veiled allusions to the late Khomeini's often purple rhetoric. All of that, moreover, was really just what the U.S. wanted from Iran. Inasmuch as Washington has always felt a free hand to work through its own proxies in the region, be they Israel, Saudi Arabia, the Kurds, or laterally the Syrian Democratic Forces, it takes a poor view of any other player on the scene trying to tip the balance one way or the other. And Iranian involvement with the Hezbollah in Lebanon, which I talk about in last show's notes, was a particular sticking point for the men in D.C. Without saying as much, because it wouldn't have gone over well domestically either, Rafsanjani was reaching towards a detente with the U.S., Nobody wants to be a pariah state, and as Rob Morris and I have said a million times by now, it was also in the U.S.'s interest to start opening towards Iran, spreading our culture and values through the market, which is the only way that we've ever done it successfully. But as Axworthy points out, quote, it was to no avail. President George H.W. Bush had said of relations with Iran in 1989 that goodwill begets goodwill, but he was sensitive to suggestions that he personally had been involved in Iran-Contra, And even once the Lebanon hostage problem was resolved, and despite contacts with Rafsanjani's people that for a time looked promising, his officials were discouraged. Bush was unwilling to take risks with foreign policy as his campaign for re-election came closer. The Clinton administration that followed in 93 was initially more focused on domestic matters, and in the Middle East on the Israel-Palestine question, and it has been suggested that Clinton's first Secretary of State, Warren Christopher, was especially hostile to Iran, because of his memories of negotiations over the embassy hostages under President Carter. There was a further factor also. 
After the fall of the Soviet Union, there was an unemployment problem within the U.S. state system. Former Kremlinologists were looking for a job. Some found it in Iran policy, but unfortunately they carried over too much of their previous thinking too uncritically, slotting Iran into the role of the former Soviet Union and labeling the Islamic Republic therefore as totalitarian, expansionist, and of course, doomed. None of which was ever necessarily the case, unquote. And as Axworthy points out, and I've talked about in a few of the short shows, when people at state and in the intelligence services assume that somebody's up to no good, sooner or later they come up with that evidence. So while Iran in the 1990s and into the 2000s was far from perfect, while it had issues with basic press freedoms and women's rights, while it was without doubt the heir of the same regime that had made torture and execution of dissidents an unfortunate part of the war on Iraq, or even a monstrous one, it was, after 1990, also stable, not particularly on board with sponsoring any objectionable groups abroad, and calm with normal political processes at home. Neither the US nor Iran was yet ready for reconciliation. Then the entire balance of power in the Middle East shifted. Saddam Hussein opened the way. When he seized Kuwait, America mobilized a coalition to throw him out. And after the war, American forces stayed on, for the first time within easy reach of Iran. We believe the presence of foreign forces in the region are inherently destabilizing. Furthermore, we believe that the presence of foreign forces in the region, particularly those of the United States, have objectives which go beyond the liberation of Kuwait, and these are, in reality, sources of grave concern. Rafsanjani, for his part, did not manage to dig out of the economic hole brought on by the war and falling oil prices by the end of his second term. And the way his family had enriched itself during his terms did not reflect well on him either. In the 1996 elections, somebody whose name nobody on this show needs to remember was the picked candidate of the establishment, meaning Khomeini and Rafsanjani and their men in the Guardian Council. But out of nowhere, one Mohammed Khatami, who had been Minister of Islamic Guidance in 1982, and who at that moment was running the National Library, came around and won election to the presidency as an almost total surprise to the country. He had religious credentials, which helped him out with the folks on the right who were disillusioned with Rafsanjani and dubious of the sort of cleric Khomeini, while also retaining cachet with the until then dwindling left wing of the Majlis. Khatami ran on greater openness, cultural freedom, and the space to grow a real civil society. Some of what seems like half-hearted attempts by the establishment to shut down his campaign, like attacks by Hezbollahis, ended up reinforcing his popularity instead with a population that was more than tired of the Rafsanjani Khomeini status quo. From Axworthy, quote, The election success of what came to be called the Second Kordad Movement, after the date of the election in the Iranian calendar, was important in a number of ways. It seemed to show that the Iranian system was capable of change from within, that even if democracy in Iran was far from perfect, it was nonetheless a form of democracy that could deliver nasty surprises for those who sought to contain it and to provide a new government based on the wishes of the people. It gave reason for renewed faith in the system set up by the revolution, and hope for further changes for the better in the future. It was a time for enthusiasm and euphoria, and a feeling of national near-unity and optimism that had not existed since 1979." Unquote. Remember as we go about exploring and judging Iranian politics over this period too, that there are plenty of ways that democracy in the U.S. is as or more vulnerable to manipulation and corruption by the men who rule the status quo. 
gerrymandering, voter suppression, the incumbent advantage, the two-party system, first-past-the-post voting, unlimited money in politics, unlimited campaigning seasons. These are all things that are bad here, and we oughtn't to consign an imperfect Iranian democracy to some other category without first giving ours a hard look. Katami, on reaching office, opened up freedom of speech a good bit, greatly increasing the number of newspapers operating the country, etc., etc., and is part of the reason why Iran, right now, has such a quality film industry. Katami, in foreign policy, wanted to continue on the track that Rafsan Johnny had begun. That is, quietly, slowly approaching the United States. He took an interview with Christian Amanpour of CNN and used the opportunity to send some hints to the men in Washington. From Axworthy, quote, Taking the 1998 Amanpour interview to an intellectual level that few Western politicians would have attempted, Katami drew upon de Tocqueville's Democracy in America to point out the religious foundations of democracy and liberty in the United States, and their origin in the quest by 17th century Puritans and nonconformists for a space in which to live and worship freely. Religion had provided the social glue that had permitted liberty and democracy to flourish without becoming self-destructive. The United States was still a more firmly religious country than many other Western nations. And quoting him directly now, Therefore, the approach to religion, which was the foundation of Anglo-American civilization, relies on the principle that religion and liberty are consistent and compatible. I believe that if humanity is looking for happiness, it should combine religious spirituality with the virtues of liberty. Back to the actually quote. Katami was, of course, addressing a domestic audience as well as the American one. He was telling the Americans that Iran and its system were not as strange as they may think, and that the religious state in Iran was also capable of liberty. But he was also telling the Iranian audience that the religious state needed to allow liberty back in, unquote. The regime in general has been a push and pull between hardline elements centered around Khomeini, whose power has increased every year since Rafsanjani left office, and a back-and-forth control of the Majlis and the presidency. Sometimes conservative, as under Ahmadinejad later, and sometimes more moderate, liberalizing, and reformist, like under Khatami. The early 2000s Majlis elections brought in a reformist parliament, which fought and lost a series of battles against the hardliners on freedoms of the press, openings in politics, and the relaxation of restrictions on women. The parliament faced off against the state media apparatus, controlled by Khomeini's men, and the reform laws they managed to pass got shot down by the Guardian Council, full of clerics picked by Khomeini and the previous Majlis. Katami and his parliaments, despite him being elected again in 2001 with 80% of the vote, could make little or no headway against a recalcitrant and embedded element of rightists in the Islamic councils of government. Not unlike a liberal president here in the U.S. who had trouble slipping anything by reactionary and aged dotards in the government pretty recently, those eight long years of effective inaction under Katami would usher in, in 2005, a Trump-like populist figure. You said that you wanted to use this interview to deliver a message to the American people. I've lived in America, and I know the concerns of the average American when it comes to Iran. And it's the message that has come out of Iran over the last 20 years. The message hostage-taking, the message of death to America, the message of burning the American flag, the message that almost looks like Islam has declared a war against America and the West. Let me ask you first about the hostage crisis, which is emblazoned in every American's mind. As you know, in all revolutions, the communist revolution in Russia, the French revolution, perhaps even the American revolutions, the early years contain many excesses. Would you say that 
taking the American hostages at the beginning of the Iranian Islamic Revolution falls into the category of early revolutionary excesses. Thank you for your question. I believe that first we have to analyze events within their proper context and with circumspection. The image of Islam which has been presented, and I don't want to accuse anyone here, has been an erroneous one. Islam is a religion which calls all humanity, irrespective of religion or belief, to rationality and logic. Islam invites followers of all divine religions to unite around God worship and all Muslims to fraternity. The Islam which we know and practice and upon which we founded our revolution recognizes the right of all human beings to determine their own destiny. It declares that relations among nations must be based on logic and mutual respect. Such Islam is an enemy to no nation, enemy to no religion. It seeks dialogue, understanding and peace with all nations. One of the major flaws in the United States foreign policy, which I recently construed as being behind the times, is that they continue to live with Cold War mentality and try to create a perceived enemy. Here I don't wish to insult anyone. I know that there are quite a few wise and fair-minded personalities and statesmen in the United States. But the outcome of the interplay within the United States polity has shaped the U.S. policy in a manner that continues to be a prisoner of Cold War mentality. After the collapse of communism, there has been an attempt by certain circles to portray Islam as the new enemy. And regrettably, they are targeting progressive Islam rather than certain regressive interpretations of Islam. They attack an Islam which seeks democracy, progress and development, an Islam which calls for utilization of achievements of human civilization, including that of the West. Before 2005, though, there would be some events in the world and the region that would affect the Iranians pretty directly. Quote, the Iranian reaction to the attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon on 11 September 2001 was striking and seemed to many to create an opportunity to bypass the continuing stalemate in U.S.-Iranian relations. For once, at least initially, reformists and hardliners were united. Both Khomeini and Khatami condemned the attacks in the strongest terms, and ordinary Iranians went onto the streets and lit candles in spontaneous demonstrations of support. This contrasted with other parts of the Middle East, where, in places, people celebrated the blow against America. When it emerged that the Al-Qaeda perpetrators of the suicide attacks were Saudi Arabians and Egyptians, and Sunnis rather than Shia Muslims, initial suspicions in some quarters in the U.S. that Iran might have been involved evaporated. As minds turned to the necessity for action against the Taliban in Afghanistan, who had sheltered Al-Qaeda, it became clear even to some of the most ignorant and prejudiced that for once there could be a major coincidence of interests between Iran and the U.S., unquote. What might have been totally under almost all American radars, including mine at the time, was that the Iranians were no friends of the Taliban. The Afghan regime was fundamentalist Sunni, and the Iranians had been funding the Northern Alliance's rebellion against the Taliban, the group we eventually supported, since the Soviet withdrawal, on and off. Likewise, massacres of Hazari Shiites in Afghanistan by the Taliban did little to endear that regime to Iran. The U.S., by contrast, along with the Saudis and Pakistan, 
had actually been funding the Taliban after the Soviet withdrawal and into the early 1990s. Once the U.S. got into the country and began backing that same northern alliance, Iran cooperated with the Americans on intelligence issues and granted them flyover rights to assist in their effort. Axworthy also notes that at the international conference in Bonn in December 2001, when we were figuring out what to do with Afghanistan now that we'd conquered it, the Iranians, more than a little important as Afghanistan's next-door neighbor, gave the U.S. significant help in pushing the warlords and politicians in that country to accept the democratic structures that the U.S. and her allies were also pushing for. Despite that assistance, George Bush made his Axis of Evil speech at the State of the Union in 2002, once again bolstering the positions of the hardliners in the regime and undercutting liberals like Khatami, who were working to normalize relations at a time when the U.S. really had nothing to be angry at Iran for and no definite interest in antagonizing Tehran, except to fire up the base and score political points with a public that would uncritically accept negative statements about Iran. Despite the speech, in his continuing effort to normalize relations with the U.S. and to resolve a whole host of issues, including past and possibly future support for Hezbollah, the frozen Iranian assets from the 1970s, Iranian international isolation and sanctions, Khatami directed the Iranian ambassador to France to make a contact with the Swiss ambassador to Iran, and they got together to write the roadmap, together secretly also with American diplomats, which was a list of conditions and concessions from each side, the completion of which could lead to a restabilization of normal diplomatic conditions. Both Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld and Vice President Dick Cheney nixed the proposal, saying that, quote, we don't speak to evil, unquote, which as Axworthy notes, quote, was a bold but questionable declaration, given Rumsfeld's infamous handshake with Saddam Hussein in December 1983, unquote, after top U.S. officials already knew about his widespread use of chemical weapons and his internal repression. Katami continued to try reaching out and worked at political reform at home, one curtailing the powers of the Legislative and Candidate Review Guardian Council, and another expanding the powers of the president back to where they'd been before the constitutional reforms in 1989 that had siphoned away some of those to the supreme leader. But since the Guardian Council had veto power over those same bills, they never became law. I think Katami had the right focus in those eight years, from 97 to 2005. It was clear enough that Iran needed political reform to put the center of gravity in its democracy among the people, rather than the leader and his appointed councils. Unfortunately, the political focus left economics to one side, and the preponderance of wealth accruing to a smaller and smaller elite of particular families, in an unfortunate repeat of the reign of the Shah. Disillusionment was particularly strong among young Iranians, not just because they'd been the most fervent supporters of Khatami's reformist platform, but because in a country of high unemployment, little relative opportunity to go to college, and little relative opportunity for those without college degrees, there was little else to be but disillusioned. Axworthy writes that, in order to combat illegal alcohol consumption, fornication and prostitution, as well as drug use, the regime resorted to widespread floggings, and young people protested and sometimes rioted fairly regularly throughout the aughts. Montezari at the time was suggesting to Katami that he ought to resign in protest of the clerical figures in government stymieing what were clearly popular reforms, sparking a political crisis with the inherent possibility for change. Axworthy notes that with approval ratings in the 80s, at least early in his second term, Katami might successfully have pulled off that kind of move, but ultimately that he wanted to, quote, uphold and reform the system established by the revolution. He warned that his reforms represented the last chance for the Islamic Republic 
but he was not the man to risk overturning it, unquote. Now, at this point, things should be sounding familiar to us here in the United States. A very popular moderate liberal president was elected almost by surprise and out of nowhere on a platform of reform, with the support of a moderate liberal wave in the legislature. Despite ongoing popular support for the reform agenda, entrenched, aged conservatives with just enough power to torpedo those reforms, but without any ideas of their own, managed to create deadlock for eight years, leaving large swathes of the electorate disgusted with their politics and ready to turn to whoever promised to shake up the status quo. I want to be super clear about what I'm saying here. The next president of Iran, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, elected after Khatami on a conservative populist platform without any real proposals except anger and prejudice, enemy A number one in the American consciousness vis-a-vis Iran, is pretty much a facsimile of, or the other way around, whichever, of our current president, Donald Trump. Our second goal is to prevent regimes that sponsor terror from threatening America or our friends and allies with weapons of mass destruction. Some of these regimes have been pretty quiet since September the 11th, but we know their true nature. North Korea is a regime arming with missiles and weapons of mass destruction while starving its citizens. Iran aggressively pursues these weapons and exports terror, while an unelected few repress the Iranian people's hope for freedom. Iraq continues to flaunt its hostility toward America and to support terror. The Iraqi regime has plotted to develop anthrax and nerve gas and nuclear weapons for over a decade. This is a regime that has already used poison gas to murder thousands of its own citizens, leaving the bodies of mothers huddled over their dead children. This is a regime that agreed to international inspections, then kicked out the inspectors. This is a regime that has something to hide from the civilized world. States like these and their terrorist allies constitute an axis of evil arming to threaten the peace of the world. By seeking weapons of mass destruction, these regimes pose a grave and growing danger. They could provide these arms to terrorists, giving them the means to match their hatred. They could attack our allies or attempt to blackmail the United States. In any of these cases, the price of indifference would be catastrophic. We will work closely with our coalition to deny terrorists and their state sponsors the materials, technology, and expertise to make and deliver weapons of mass destruction. We will develop and deploy effective... Mahmoud Ahmadinejad belonged to a reformist group within the hardline right, which was frustrated with Khamenei's coterie, the older members of the conservative establishment and their failure to press through more conservative policies over the eight years of Khatami's terms in office. Ahmadinejad was backed, basically, by the Iranian Tea Party. One of his most high-profile moves in his previous job, mayor of Tehran, was to abandon a tree-planting program his predecessor had started and instead begin installing martyrs' graves filled with bodies still being discovered on the border. He planted them largely near universities and the affluent, hipsterish parts of town to hammer home the sacrifices of real Iranians to the more educated liberal elite. 
With the Guardian Council doing serious vetting and the reformist and leftist sides of Iranian politics exhausted and disillusioned, the conservatives won big in the 2003 parliamentary elections, giving the country a far-right majlis headed into the 2005 presidential. Rafsanjani was the big-name conservative candidate that year, your Jeb Bush, if you will. But Ahmadinejad was out haranguing crowds with plain language, saying what he really meant, and he swept the election right out from under old Hashemi. From Axworthy, quote, Mongoloid, said one leading member of the old guard, himself the son of an Ayatollah and a noted reformist, for every name I mentioned in the Ahmadinejad clique. Mongoloids, all of them. Sitting there in his home in North Tehran, sumptuously decorated with Persian antiques, he wasn't aware of the offensiveness of that term in the West. He meant that they were grossly unqualified for their jobs, unquote. But the establishment's disdain for Ahmadinejad and the people he brought into government only solidified his support among the masses of the uneducated and traditionally minded. Axworthy again, and this is almost getting spooky now, right? Quote, they liked his simple language, his cheap clothes, and his nationalist rhetoric. They felt he was like them. They liked it that he offended the privileged, rich people and foreigners. His occasional wackiness and apparent ignorance did nothing to trouble them either, unquote. Yeah, guys. In another mirror of Trump, while on the campaign trail, Ahmadinejad had made economic reform and the alleviation of the plight of the poor his main platform planks. But once he got into the office, it was all about playing power politics and international games and gunning for the bomb. Likewise, promises that he'd made about redistributing oil wealth fell by the wayside. Just like Trump, he was only a moron masquerading as a populist, and just like Trump, he rode the popular anger about elites in the establishment into power without ever turning to address popular grievances with either. One last thing to remember here, especially for people of my generation who grew up with George Bush and Ahmadinejad railing at one another, and who got our original conceptions of and opinions about Iran from Ahmadinejad's ignorance and anti-Semitism and Holocaust denialism and total lunacy in the UN, we have to remember that the only sense in which he represented Iranians is the sense that Donald Trump represents us right now. They might be some embodiment of all our worst impulses when we let ourselves down and elect them, but it's high time people of my age and any other Americans stopped using Ahmadinejad as the yardstick by which to measure that country. So, turning now to that big sticking point of the last two decades, the nuclear question. Unsurprisingly, the existing nuclear infrastructure in Iran is ours, in part. We encouraged a Shah-era plan to invest oil wealth in the construction of an eventual 24 civilian reactors, and the first of these was very nearly completed at the time of the 1979 revolution. The Shah had also, with implicit American approval, been pursuing a clandestine nuclear weapons program that he mentioned offhandedly to Western journalists every once in a while. After the revolution, Khomeini and his crew nixed both civil and military programs immediately, calling them wasteful and lumping them in with the Shah's extravagant palace building and weapons buying as unnecessary. The regime turned around on that policy, just on the civilian side, in the mid-1980s, a reaction to what had seemed like unlimited oil production and high sale prices falling during the war with Iraq. With more and more of what oil they could extract being earmarked for export, they needed to explore alternative domestic sources of energy. But those efforts fizzled for lack of international partners, and it wouldn't be until 2011 that they got Russian help in finishing the plant at Boucher, begun under the Shah, and headed up and running. 
All the same, there had been rumblings for a long while by the time that reactor got up that Iran was trying in secret to develop nuclear arms. That it took so long to get their first civilian reactor online, though, I think speaks to their actual capacity to have done so as rapidly as our publics were often encouraged to fear. Something that virtually nobody my own age will remember is the U.S. discovering and reporting the existence of a centrifuge facility at Natanz in 2002. Something that comes up a lot is a credible date for the start of a serious weapons program. That's pretty off-base, though, too, since Natanz was set up for light enrichment, that is, commercial power production and not the production of fissile material, and wasn't up and running anyway for a long time after that point. What's clear is that at some moment, probably under Ahmadinejad, Iran did start movement in earnest towards a nuclear weapon. Since Iran was a signatory to the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, or NPT, which restricts the bomb to the US, Britain, France, Russia, and China, that was a problem twice over. There were, Ahmadinejad to one side, two pretty good reasons for Iran to want the bomb. The first is that while we often forget it, the NPT is a two-sided treaty. Only those nuclear-armed states are allowed to have the bomb, sure, but in return, they're supposed to provide assistance in developing civilian power and other facilities, because nuclear materials are now used in medicine all sorts of stuff. Iran wasn't getting that assistance, and hadn't been getting it for decades. Creating a credible weapons program was one way to bring those nations to the table, and the nuclear deal under Obama and nuclear negotiations that went on in the early aughts are pretty good evidence of the effectiveness of that strategy if that's what they were going for. The second reason they might want a weapon, as actually writes, quote, From an Iranian perspective, some find it hard to understand why, if a state like Britain, for example, in the middle of a peaceful Europe and protected by EU and NATO alliances, continues to value nuclear weapons for self-defense, the same should not apply to a state like Iran, which suffered attacks from Iraqi weapons of mass destruction in the 1980s, and whose neighbors include some that are unstable, Iraq, Afghanistan, several near neighbors that are nuclear-armed, Russia and China, Israel outside of the NPT and with U.S. help, and one neighbor that is both unstable and nuclear-armed, Pakistan, unquote. But none of that has changed international opinion on an Iranian bomb. The country actually doesn't mention there, and which is the biggest in terms of nuclear and mass-destructive weapons, the least stable in terms of the Middle East, and the one that has threatened Iran and put troops near it the most over the last 20 years, is the United States itself. Do you know why Iran wants, and I think it probably ought to have, a nuclear weapon? Because having the bomb, especially the low numbers of relatively poor quality weapons that Iran would be capable of producing, it's about deterrence. If I were an Iranian, I would be terrified of the United States. What with the way congressmen, senators, and presidents, like Donald Trump every other week, threaten violent action against Iran, despite a total lack of provocation on the Iranian side. Tehran continually tries to reach out to the U.S., but D.C., like a drunk with a gun, periodically blows up over nothing and threatens to wipe Iran off the map. And that's a credible threat, too, to the Iranians. In 2003, we went in and destroyed Iraq right across the border, likewise with literally zero reason behind the attack. If I were Iranian, I'd want the bomb, because it seems like the only thing sure to keep the U.S. from up and deciding to invade one day. Anyway, under Katami, Iran agreed to halt enrichment and to sign the additional protocol in the early aughts to the NPT, in return, ostensibly, for help with the civilian nuclear program. 
They negotiated with the EU3, that is Germany, France, and Italy, but since the US was the real power behind the negotiations, and totally opposed to any kind of nuclear program, despite the increased IAEA inspections under the additional protocol to the NPT, that help was never forthcoming. Once Ahmadinejad came to power in June 2005, he wasn't going to take that international stalling or manipulation anymore. He went to the UN to spit in Western faces and shortly afterwards announced that enrichment had restarted, that the Iranians were on top of it, and that they'd shortly be producing all the nuclear power they could want. Bigly. Iranian efforts, despite Ahmadinejad's boasting, actually went pretty slowly, and attempted deals with other civil nuclear countries for more enriched uranium fell through. The CIA and Mossad virus collaboration Stuxnet hit Natanz in 2010 and blew up a bunch of their centrifuges, putting the program on hold for the time being. My interview with Iranian President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, it turned out to be a feisty one. The president seemed to relish the give and take, which produced some startling and surreal moments. He even suggested at one point that Osama bin Laden is living quietly in Washington, D.C., home to the powerful woman he called Iran's enemy. You called Secretary of State Clinton an enemy of Iran. Do you consider President Obama an enemy of Iran as well? I consider that there is a difference between Mr. Obama and Mrs. Clinton. But I'd like to ask, is Mrs. Clinton a friend of Iran in your opinion, as an American? In your mind, do you think she's a friend of ours? I believe that Secretary of State Clinton is a friend of the Iranian people. I believe she is um, opposed to some actions of the Iranian government, specifically the development of uh, nuclear enrichment, which could lead to a weapons program in the future. Very well. We are friends of the American people. But if the United States stores several thousand nuclear bombs, threatens others, interferes in other countries' affairs, I would say these are actions that we are opposed to. Does that turn us into an enemy of the American people, or the enemy of the wrong policies adopted by some authorities? Is Mrs. Clinton a friend of the Iranian people? I represent the Iranian people. The U.S. has had economic and diplomatic sanctions in place against Iran since 1979 in varying degrees. Actually, the rights that Iran's economy has in some ways adapted to those sanctions, with smuggling and re-export of Western goods through places like Dubai, allowing prohibited trade a way in. From Axworthy, quote, As in other authoritarian states, organs of the regime, especially the Revolutionary Guards, have used their privileged positions to take over a major role in smuggling operations. In this way, measures that were intended to pressurize and weaken the Iranian regime have often had the perverse effect of feeding extra revenue to parts of it, unquote, an effect that U.S. sanctions have had everywhere from Russia to Cuba. The same effect with sanctions leads to the elements of society we'd hypothetically be behind, like the liberal middle classes, being hurt by sanctions while the people in charge prosper. American values spread best through free trade and open communication. Making sure that none of that gets into Iran just helps those men in Khomeini's coterie, who would have the average Iranian forget that the U.S. exists as anything but an amorphous enemy. Under U.S. leadership, the U.N. passed a series of sanctions after 2005 aimed at the nuclear program, which pushed the country further and further away from the West and into Russian and Chinese trade networks. Axworthy in his book at this point gets into Ahmadinejad and the Holocaust, and yeah man, that's all garbage. I'm not, if you couldn't tell, an Ahmadinejad guy. But from the US, you're looking at a regime that produced a Trump, 
And then you've done your best with sanctions, etc., to reinforce that dude's popularity and to push him into the authoritarian arms of the Russians and the Chinese. Like, no good, man. Ahmadinejad was a clown, but we made him and propped him up. As for George W. Bush and his ilk, the clown was good for them. They like the clown. W. and John McCain and Dick Cheney could grandstand about teaching the clown a lesson, and everybody on top on both sides benefited from the rhetoric, while the sanctions crushed the Iranian poor and middle classes, and American southern youth geared up to fight another potential war against browner folks across the water. From Axworthy again, quote, Another result of Ahmadinejad's provocation and posturing was that, once again, it became the norm to lay crimes at the Iranian's door for which others were responsible. This was particularly noticeable as the United States got into greater difficulties in Iraq in 2006. The Bush administration attempted to portray Iran as a major cause of their difficulties in Iraq, if not the major cause. But the evidence for this was thin, and it seemed inherently implausible that the Iranians would seriously be trying to destabilize a government in Iraq with which Iran was most closely aligned. He means there that the new coalition governments were Shiite and Iranian-aligned and that Iran wouldn't have any interest in getting rid of those. Returning to it, by contrast, there was good evidence that there was a lot of support from individuals and groups within Saudi Arabia for al-Qaeda and the Sunni insurgency in Iraq, which was the more serious problem for the coalition. But because Saudi Arabia was supposedly the West's great ally in the region, these awkward facts have in general been ignored by Western media and politicians alike, unquote, but not by me or Rob Morris in our joint shows, where we talk about them all the time. It begins with a simple USB key, then with surgical precision, penetrates some of the world's most advanced computer security. The first cyber weapons, say experts, to threaten to damage targets in the real world. Cyber strategists like Gaddy Evron say the Stuxnet worm is so formidable it almost certainly has to have state backing. This would require a lot of resources on the level of a nation state. Now, taking into account the intelligence required to attack a specific target, it would make it nearly or to virtually impossible that this is a lone attacker sitting at home. The Stuxnet worm infects systems through a USB key, then goes on the hunt for specific industrial computers made by the company Siemens. When it finds one, it can lie dormant, waiting to sabotage or destroy an industrial process with potentially disastrous consequences. We're used to Trojans and viruses on the internet, but this is the first worm designed to damage the physical world and critical infrastructure in particular. Things like factories, chemical plants and pipelines are all potential targets. This week, Iran claimed computers at its Boucher nuclear plant were attacked by the Stuxnet worm. It won't reveal how much damage has been done, but there have been numerous mysterious delays in its nuclear program. In the Reading offices of cybersecurity... From Axworthy, quote, Iran is now predominantly urban and literate. The success of women's education and the consequent expansion of the importance of women in the workplace and in the economy is a huge social and cultural change in Iran, and one that, in time and combined with other factors, is likely to have profound consequences for Iranian society as a whole. It also contributes to the different atmosphere Iran has by comparison with other countries in the Middle East. Women are particularly prominent in skilled roles in the public sector. A third of doctors, 60% of civil servants, and 80% of school teachers are women. But women also work in a wide variety of other jobs, unquote. 
Actually, also points out that it's strange to think that Iranian women might have made gains in their earning potential and their position in the workplace under a regime that had, among its first acts, worked to constrain the freedom and power of women. But there were a few explanations. The first was just the war. As during the Second World War in the U.S., the exodus of men from the factories and the offices left room for women to move in. Another reason is that inasmuch as the ruling mullahs weren't into free women, they were into education, good education, even for women, as a good in itself. And that has, as it does everywhere, changed attitudes about and among Iranian women. The thing to remember here, too, is that although if you go to YouTube and look up Iran, like I do every single show for these transitional clips, there are dozens and dozens of videos of people looking back lovingly at the Shah's Iran. It's women dressed up like Westerners, listening to pop music, drinking, showing off the nightlife. But what's not clear from those clips is that you're looking at a vanishingly small subset of Iranian women at the time, the wealthiest, the most privileged, and the most urban. The great majority of Iranians, men and women, were still living outside of the major cities, and much more than that outside of Tehran, which is pretty much the only place you're seeing there. Despite the outwardly uncomfortable, for us, trappings of the Shadur and the Veil, and the very real setbacks in social freedoms that Iranian women have experienced, they are on average way better educated and integrated into the workforce and society than they ever were back in 1975. From Axworthy again, quote, Some among the ulama have challenged the religious judgments on the status of women that were pushed through into law at the time of the revolution. Women were prominent in the reform movement, and again, especially in the green movement in 2009, which we'll get to, even in the face of regime violence against street demonstrations. The social change to a more urbanized, highly educated society in which women play a much more assertive role is of huge significance, and is bound to change politics in Iran too in the medium to long term." The next election in Iran came up in spring of 2009, a little less than six months into Obama's first term. If you remember way back when, Obama on the trail talked a lot about sitting down to chat with our enemies, pushing reset buttons and extending hands. And he caught so much garbage from the American right for those positions, for the naivete, for being an appeaser. But the immediate effect of just that policy in Iran was to make the hardline positions of the conservative clergy at the top suddenly untenable. When Obama spoke in March of that year of the, quote, true greatness of the Iranian people and their civilization, unquote, and their, quote, demonstrated ability to build and create, unquote, just like that, blanket condemnations of the United States went out the window and created an opportunity within Iran for the moderates and liberals to come on back after four years of their own Donald Trump. But then the 2009 election happened. From an Iranian journalist, quote, For the first time in the Islamic Republic's election history, candidates debated with each other in the American style, publicly before the people, Heated words were exchanged about the country's current policies on a platform provided by the media whose head is selected by the leader. Prior to this, no one had dared to utter a word about the corruption of the sons of Hashemi Rafsanjani in front of the Iranian government's cameras. But now Ahmadinejad, in order to escape from being cornered, referred openly to these affairs, though of course he was not pushed by the leader or any judicial institution to answer for this. The televised debates caused an immediate reaction. The slumber that had characterized these years was left behind, and people exploded out into the streets. The enthusiasm over the elections was at its peak, unquote. Turnout was high, which reinforced expectations that the reformists and liberals who had boycotted or otherwise sat out the last election had come out in droves for this one. 
But when the counts came in, it was Ahmadinejad who clinched a landslide, and not the liberal candidate Mousavi. Remember him, the old prime minister during the war, Mousavi? Actually states that there's no conclusive evidence that the vote was falsified or otherwise tampered with, but that circumstantial evidence does point in that direction. We're getting towards the end here, so without bogging down, all of what I've read sounds suggestive of that the powers that be were throwing an election way to Ahmadinejad's side when he might actually have won it by a small, normal-looking margin without that interference. Khomeini had also been making statements in the run-up to the effect that Ahmadinejad was his dude, which was a departure from past practice, when the Supreme Leader kept away from endorsing candidates. What does seem clear is that regardless of whether the ruling cliques stole the election, they definitely screwed with it, and a national and international uproar followed. What became known as the Green Demonstrations and Protests got widely televised in the U.S., along with government repression of them, and there was some pressure on Obama to do something about it. But just for a second, let's consider that, because we're getting close to the present, which means it's getting important for us to think seriously about policy decisions. There's an electoral crisis in another country, and our role in that begins where, exactly? Do we intervene with arms? With rhetoric? What if the Iranians had stepped into our country in 2000, when a conservative ruling clique in the Supreme Court stole the election from the person who, we found out shortly afterwards, had actually won it? Al Gore in Florida. Would American liberals have been happy for the help? Would we have liked it if they'd sent the Hezbollah or the Sepa in to turn our protests into a full-fledged revolution? No, all of that is insane. And what we have to keep in mind is that it is 100% as insane when we talk about doing similar things to Iran's or anyone else's domestic politics. From Actworthy, in Iran, quote, Important figures like former presidents Rafsanjani and Khatami were openly critical of what had happened both the election rigging and the repression, along with the help of Montezeri. Remember Montezeri? Opposition candidates refused to be silenced, and Khomeini was forced to take a more partisan position than ever before, abandoning the notion that his office put him above day-to-day politics. The demonstrations rewarded him with the chant, Death to the Dictator. His position was weakened, unquote. The conflicts over power in Iran today are ongoing. You've got hardliners versus reformers. You've got the Islamic, the authoritarian, and the democratic elements in the constitution existing side by side. You have the mass of the people, and then you've got the once heroic Sepa now operating like the Red Army in China, getting rich conducting pseudo-legal enterprises. And Iran muddles its way through in a mix of all these forces and systems. Last long axworthy quote here to cap the section. Quote, but those at the top of the regime run a risk a known risk that people have been pointing out ever since 1979. Shiism, more than any other form of Islam, is traditionally acutely, almost obsessively sensitive to the abuse of political power. Islam still works as a support to the regime because a significant portion of the population still accepts its Islamic credentials. But when innocents are beaten up, tortured, and shot for asking what has happened to their vote, and when peaceful funerals are broken up by club-wielding thugs, the risk run by the regime intensifies. The Shia Crescent theory of a threat by Iranian-backed revolt by the Shia underclasses of the Persian Gulf region is bunk. Iran has interests and associates in both Iraq and Afghanistan, and the interests, like the borders, are permanent, unlike, perhaps, those of the U.S. and her allies. Iran does not like the heavy U.S. and allied military presence so close to its borders. Though largely unproven, there probably has been covert Iranian involvement in both Iraq and Afghanistan. 
But the closer to Iran's borders, the more pragmatic Iran's foreign and security policy has been. The stated Iranian policy towards both Iraq and Afghanistan has been to foster stability in both. And it is a serious failure of Western diplomacy that we have been unable to make better use of the strong alignment of interests between ourselves and the Iranians. So, is Iran a democracy? We are probably too ready to dismiss democracies for not being perfect. For example, some say Britain was no longer a democracy after the invasion of Iraq in 2003 because large numbers had demonstrated against the invasion, and opinion polls suggested a majority opposed it. Democracy has some categorical attributes. First, it needs a democratic constitution. Iran has that, at least potentially. It is flouted and manipulated by the regime in many respects, but elections have been held regularly, politicians have accepted loss of office, and government has proceeded without coups d'etat, albeit with a question mark over the events of June 2009. More importantly, it needs a democratic people. In other words, a people who believe in or aspire to be democratic. Iran has that too, as the Green Movement has demonstrated, and Khatami's reform movement before that. If democracy is most alive, where people are most willing to struggle, suffer, and even die for it, then the events of 2009 showed democracy alive and vigorous in Iran. Some have suggested that this is the most important aspect of the events of that year, that they marked the renewal of the Iranian people's commitment to the principles of democracy and freedom. But a functioning democracy, in which the will of the people is expressed through elections and determines the nature of the ruling government, no, Iran does not yet have that, unquote. Axworthy ends his book right around there, during Ahmadinejad's second term, on a pretty low note. But we fortunately got a high one here for ourselves. Hassan Rouhani, who handled nuclear negotiations for Katami back in the early 2000s, made his way to the presidency, not just once, but twice, first in 2013 and for the second time this past spring. Rouhani is a liberal moderate, focused on economics, looking to close the wealth gap and expand employment and purchasing power for the average Iranian. When no president, liberal or conservative, has done much for the people's pockets in decades. He's come out against media censorship, although he doesn't have full control of that, and results have been mixed at best. Likewise on women's rights. In a speech after his first election, he said, quote, There must be equal opportunities for women. There is no difference between man and woman in their creation, in their humanity, in their pursuit of knowledge, in their understanding, in their intelligence, in their religious piety, in serving God, and in serving people, unquote. But movement on women's rights, human rights in general, and executions in particular has been slow. Rouhani's not wildly but moderately liberal, and he's got mountains to move in terms of Khomeini and his clique. Iran and the U.S. reached the nuclear deal under Obama and Rouhani, two men willing to work in good faith towards a compromise solution to a difficult problem. That was great for Rouhani's popularity in Iran, where surveys have shown that most people really do want to reach some understanding with the U.S., but recently, there's been a change on our side, and Donald Trump, by trying to unilaterally end the nuclear deal, by profaning Iran in the press and on Twitter, and by being, well, Donald Trump, is doing everything in his power short of war to reinforce Khomeini and his men over and against Rouhani and other reformers. What's in store for Iran depends on the Iranians, and it looks like it will probably be a slow, steady process whereby their democracy gets better and better where they and we open up to each other without one culture overwhelming the other, and where American conservatives hopefully lose the habit of threatening tens of millions of people with annihilation to fire up the ignorant tuned into Fox News. Some of that progress, though, or at least the speed of it, depends on us and our leaders. 
And with Trump in the White House, the people I fear for right after us ourselves are the folks in Iran. Dramatic developments in Tehran on Monday. Many wondered if Iran's opposition movement was dead, the so-called green movement that burst onto the scene after the 2009 presidential elections. We hadn't heard much from this movement for the past year, due in large part to a brutal government crackdown. But on Monday, this movement made a statement with a comeback. According to witness accounts, at one point, crowds swelled into the tens of thousands. Video clips of the protests have been posted on YouTube. It was often the cat and mouse game that we saw last year in these protests when they were at their peak. Security forces often chasing protesters away. Anti-government chants like death to the dictator. That chant we had heard before, but on Monday we heard a new one. There was a clear sign that this protest was sparked by the uprisings in Egypt and Tunisia. Take a listen. The protesters there essentially chanting the former leaders of Egypt and Tunisia are gone. Now it's time for Iran's supreme leader to be gone. Based on accounts that was largely... The New Yorker profiled Secretary of State Rex Tillerson a while back. He, like the other quote-unquote adults in the room in the Trump administration, like Generals John Kelly and Mad Dog Mattis, harbors deep-seated grudges against Iran, right alongside deep-seated ignorance. At a meeting on the nuclear deal at the UN, and quoting from the New York article now, quote, Tillerson took the microphone and began again, his voice unwavering. The real problem, he said, was that Iran had been attacking Americans since 1979, when Iranian students seized the U.S. embassy in Tehran and held 52 diplomats for more than a year. Quote, the modern-day U.S.-Iran relationship is now almost 40 years old, he went on, still looking at Iranian U.N. Ambassador Sarif, who speaks perfect English. It was born out of a revolution with our embassy under siege, and we were very badly treated, unquote. He enumerated Iranian-sponsored attacks in Lebanon in the 1980s and Iraq more recently, which together killed hundreds of American citizens. Quote, the relationship has been defined by violence against us, unquote, he said. For the Trump administration, it was an ideal expression of a bellicose new foreign policy, based on the campaign promise of America first. An aide to Tillerson later told me, quote, it was one of the finest moments in American diplomacy in the last 50 years, unquote, and unquote. American thought and even American policy at the highest levels is often shaped by ignorance. Ignorance of our own country, of its involvement abroad, and above all of the histories of the nations we seek to influence or dominate. Tillerson wasn't expressing a minority view. To most Americans and most policymakers in this country, our relationship with Iran began in 1979 with the storming of the embassy. But Iranians know better. Or maybe it's just easier to keep track of who's abusing who when you're the smaller party involved. But Iranians know that our relationship began long before 1979, and that from 1980 to 1988, there was an issue at work much larger than any that the men in Washington, D.C. liked to talk about, including the stuff that was going on in Lebanon. Our relationship has been defined by violence, by each side against the other, but the balance swings so far in our direction it ought to make all of us listening to that Tillerson quote more than a little sick. Way back at the beginning of this series, I read about a guy named Morgan Schuster. He was born in 1877, 
went to George Washington, at that time known as the Columbian University and Law School. He became a customs collector and diplomat and served in the United States all over the world. After the constitutional revolution in Iran in 1906, the newly formed Majlis looked for help from abroad straightening out the country's finances and keeping the royal court's corruption in check, and they invited Schuster to Iran to take charge. He did good work there and became, in his own way, a partisan of the constitutionalists. When the Russians and British moved on the Majlis, they forced Schuster out of the country, and he wrote a book called The Strangling of Persia about his experience there. To the quote-unquote Persian people, he said, quote, In the endeavor to repay in some slight measure the debt of gratitude imposed on me through their confidence in my purposes towards them and by their unwavering belief, under difficult and forbidding circumstances, in my desire to serve them for the regeneration of their nation, this book is dedicated by the author, unquote. Later he wrote that, quote, It was obvious that the people of Persia deserve much better than what they are getting, that they wanted us to succeed, but it was the British and the Russians who were determined not to let us succeed." Unquote. Schuster made an impression on the Iranians, along with the missionaries and what would later become known as aid workers who came to Iran to start schools, to assist in the democratic functions of government, and to help Iran develop its own natural resources, long before we allowed what were originally British and Russian interests to embroil us in imperial ventures in that country. For Maxworthy, quote, the United States in this phase, and later, looked like the partner Iran had long hoped to find in the West. Anti-colonial, liberal, progressive, modern but not imperialist, a benevolent foreign power that would, for once, treat Iran with respect, as an agent in her own right, not as an instrument." Unquote. The leaders of our country have for fully a hundred years now advocated policies of self-determination around the world and total respect for the sanctity of national sovereignty of every nation on Earth. Iran is just one among many examples of how our betrayal of those principles turned a potential friend into an enemy and poisoned our reputation among an entire people. Time and again, there were lone voices in our press and our government that pointed out the obvious, that all we had to do to be a friend to Iran was to respect the choices of their people. We failed to do so in 1953 with Mossadegh, we failed to do so in 1979 after the revolution, and we've been failing to do so ever since. We may not like the form of Iran's government right now, but Hassan Rouhani is in charge, a moderate liberal is in charge, and all we have to do to back him and Iranian democracy is to stay away until we're called, and to come when we are in good faith, with helping hands, and without a single barrel or bullet behind our backs. And that is it, guys. It's hard to put a bow on a history and a country that are more in danger now than they have been for the last eight years, but that's about as far as we can go with it. It has been a long ride, very nearly a full year, and I am glad that you all have been here with me. I'll lay out my plans for the next couple of months at the beginning of the Rob show that will come out next week. 
But for the moment, now that this thing is done, you know what you need to do. Throw it up on Facebook. Come talk to me about it on Twitter. Share it with the family at Thanksgiving and rate, rate, rate the show. Thousands of you have listened to it on iTunes. Literally thousands. And 11 of you have rated it. Literally 11. More even than that, though, reach out to me. Tell me on Patreon or SafeForDemocracy.com or wherever what worked and what didn't and how you think I ought to handle Vietnam going into the future. For just under a year more now, SFD sits at the nexus of what you want to make of it and what I am able to deliver to you. Next time, even if it might be a few weeks coming, it's the French, Indochina, and maybe just Dien Bien Phu. I'm Jonathan Coombs, and this is Safe for Democracy. As we peer into society's future, we, you and I, and our government, must avoid the impulse to live only for today, plundering for our own ease and convenience the precious resources of tomorrow. During a long lane of the history yet to be written, America knows that this world of ours, ever growing smaller, must avoid becoming a community of dreadful fear and hate and be instead a proud confederation of mutual trust and respect. <laughs>